podcast this week, it's a case of Enter Sandman, as we talk to James McAvoy, a.k.a. Morpheus, in the new audio series version of The Sandman. Plus, the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast. I can't wait, genuinely cannot wait, to hear James Dyer's version of Toss a Coin to Your Witcher on his freshly purchased <laughs> guitar. Maybe we ask him nicely, he might do it this episode. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and believe me, that is the only time I'm ever going to be excited to hear James Dyer tossing. <laughs> Welcome to the Empire Podcast. Uh, this week, I am joined by three colleagues of such lethal cunning. I've already mentioned him 14 times. James Dyer is here, which is nice, I guess. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. My guitar playing is coming along, but I'm having difficulty maintaining a, a, a consistent strumming rhythm, which I understand is, a, is a, an issue that, that affects gentlemen of my age. <laughs> I was going to say, so, thank, uh... God you finished, thank God you finished that sentence. <laughs> well, Chris, you see, I'm having problems maintaining a consistent... I'm going to stop you there, James. <laughs> if you don't mind, uh, how is a guitar playing coming? So uh, are you... You know, how many chords have you learned now? Where are you? I know six chords wow. and three slightly suspect riffs. Uh, and I'm working on, on, on strumming rhythms and whatnot. I'm, I'm enjoying it, actually. I've never really played the guitar. This is this is new. I don't play any instruments apart from the didgeridoo, and I do that badly. Um, it's more of a didgeridoo don't. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's good. I'm, I'm rocking out. So I suspect I shall be gigging within the month. <laughs> where and to whom is well exactly mainly to squirrels near where i live i think that's uh you know. squirrels go shut the fuck up <laughs> uh we're also joined of course by our geek queen helen o'hara how are you i'm very well thank you i am yeah you know just keeping on keeping on not taking yep. up any new instruments or doing anything terribly exciting that way what do you mean new instruments what that implies that you can play an instrument uh, I did learn guitar in school. Uh, I was very really? bad at it. Yeah. And I learned the French horn, which I was perhaps even worse at. <laughs> I know. Steady on, guys. Um, to the point where my, my cousin actually also coincidentally learned the French horn later when he was in school. And um, I was encouraged to go up and see if I could still get a tune out of the old beast uh, when, one day when we were at their house. And he ran to the top of the stairs and shouted down, that's not me, it's Helen. Just lest anyone think he was that bad. So he was- You had the horn and he didn't have the horn at that particular moment. That's what he was, he was trying to convey. that is no, not appropriate. I mean, <laughs> technically correct, but not appropriate. Ew. Anyway, so there you go. I can play instruments, right. kind of. Oh, that's good. That's good. So how far did you get on the guitar? I didn't do great. I just went for guitar lessons. I didn't, I, you know, I, I learned some chords. I was never very good at riffing. Uh, like James obviously is, um, but you know I tried my best. Yes, James, give us a riff. Give us a give us a, a tasty lick. Absolutely not. But if <laughs> oh, you want to hear me play the guitar, of course you can listen to the Pilot oh, no. TV podcast oh, every Monday, where Terry has in fact been forcing me to bust out some riffs on my axe. What riffs can you do? A little like famous uh, I, riffs, or have you made up your own? Well, I started with Peter Gunn, you know, the Blues Brothers song. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. The Peter Gunn theme. And yes, then, the uh, famous Blues, Blues Brothers song, the Peter Gunn theme. <laughs> yeah. When you think Blues that's Brothers, that's the song you, you think, think of. Yes, more famous. And last week it was Seven Nation Army, which I started mm -hmm. playing. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, yeah, the famous darts song. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. So, uh, so that, and then Sunshine of Your Love was my most recent Oh, one. that's a great one. That's wow. a really, really good one. These are fairly yeah. advanced. I mean, you know, they're, 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 I know they're fairly simplistic riffs, but that's quite that's quite advanced shit. Well, who's teaching you? 
Eddie Van Halen. Justin. Justin is teaching me from justinguitar.com. Wow. <laughs> uh, his name is Justin Sandico, and he's, does, uh, he's got uh, like YouTube uh, lessons, but he has a whole website. So it's all free, which is great. I'm plugging him because I don't pay him. So justinguitar.com if you want to learn you the guitar. You don't pay him? Because it's free. Like All his lessons are free. I subscribe to his app. I pay for his app because it gives you songs that you can play along to. So it's not but his free. actual stuff. He, he st- well, but the actual core course is all on his website for free. You don't have to pay for it at all, uh, which is kind of awesome. Um, I think he gets all his money from ad stuff off YouTube. But yeah, he's a dude. He is a dude. And he rocks a flat cap. And I respect that. <laughs> uh, we're also joined, of course, by Ben Travis. Hello, Ben. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Yeah, I'm all good. I'm ready for whatever shape the Empire Band takes, as we've established. I can play the bass. I can sort of play guitar. And um, now that I know that Helen is a French horn aficionado, I also play, Ooh. well, I haven't for about a decade plus, but I can play the trumpet. So whatever you need me on. So we've got a brass section. There. We've got a brass band, it's basically. Amazing. I just like Ben's blowing his own trumpet. Helen's got the horn. This this podcast is already off the rails. You're an axe man. I've always said yeah. it. I'm, yeah. I'm strumming away here on my own. It's just, it's, yes. it's all got very sexual. You've given us tasty licks. <laughs> This is not good. This oh, is not good. Not. Uh, well, I say once this lockdown is over, uh, June 2023 is my new conservative estimate. Let's get together and let's do the Empire Band. It's what the people want. It's what the people want. Mm, is it so though? next time we do a live podcast, we can do like a live performance before oh, the show. Yeah, we could do the show right here. <laughs> I think own. everyone would prefer it if we did the show right here, away from other people. <laughs> yes. Especially if we're playing our instruments. <laughs> I'm really, I really wish I'd got into the guitar more because uh, I, you know, during lockdown, I started to, I started to get back into it properly, and then I just got work got too much, uh, and then football came back, and that was that. So, but um, you know, we'll practice, we'll practice. But anyway, enough of this music tomfoolery. Let's start the show proper. It is time for this week's fact section. Oh, I tell you what, I tell you what, someone sent in a potential name for the fact section. Shall I look it up? Sure. That'd be exciting because the fact section, as you know, is beloved. Uh, mm. The Queen mentioned it uh, in dispatches the other day, I think. I'm pretty sure she did something. She said something about this fucking fact section. Oh, no, wait, that was <laughs> Helen. That was Helen complaining to me. Uh, all right. Okay. Uh, at official underscore Sam uh, has sent in a number of options, but I'm going to go with Bill and Ted fact the music. Okay, that's, that's, okay. Yeah, that's, that's solid. Yeah. That's solid. You take face, you change it to fact, you've got yourself a name for a section. And if you're listening to the Empire Podcast for the first time, then please accept my apologies. Um, I hope there will be a second, although let's, let's be honest, we both know there won't be. But the idea of this section is that uh, every week, Helen and James, who are regrettably fixtures on this podcast, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, bring me an arcane, obscure film fact uh, that I hopefully don't know, and I award points to the winner. And there is a fourth person in the podcast. As you know, the fourth chair is rotating. There's a different pair of buttocks sitting in it every single week. This week is Ben's buttocks that will be bringing us an incredible fact. And Ben, we're going to start with you. Ooh. Okay, so uh, as usual, before I do a fact, the disclaimer for my fact is that it is sort of several small facts in one. Um, but this is me going back to, uh, I rewatched Castaway for the first time in, I don't know, like over 10 years the other day. Um, because it's topical at the because moment. Because it's topical <laughs> at the moment. And obviously now it sort of links quite nicely into Greyhound, which we're going to get to later in the show. Um, 
But yeah, I, I rewatched Castaway, and obviously, the star of Castaway isn't actually Tom Hanks. The real star of Castaway is Wilson, the beloved mm. volleyball. Everybody loves Wilson. He's the true hero. He is the 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 guy who breaks a heart. He gets the big moment. He's got great hair. Um, so I wanted to do a little bit of research uh, around Wilson. And I found out that obviously uh, when you get to the part of the film where uh, Tom Hanks has been on the island for a little while, him and Wilson have struck up a real rapport. They've got a, they've got a good thing going on. Um, and in the script, they apparently wrote lines for Wilson so that Tom Hanks had an idea of what Wilson was saying to him and that he could respond to Wilson. Now, sadly, I've been looking up trying to find uh, exact excerpts of dialogue and I couldn't find any, but I did <laughs> find a version of the script online uh, written by William Broyles Jr. And um, it has sort of like stage directions for what's going on in, in Wilson's head. Uh, so there's a bit, uh, so there's a bit where, where Chuck is giving Wilson a makeover and he says, Wilson, what? you bad. Uh, Chuck sits back and regards his companion. He gestures around the cave at the new paintings. What do you think? But Wilson doesn't have an opinion. No. Uh, so they, they sort of, which is, which is sad. We know Wilson has an opinion. He, of course he's got he a lot does. going on in there. So uh, one of my mini facts is that, yes, they wrote lines for Wilson. Uh, the second fact is that obviously his performance is so powerful that at the 2001 Critics' <laughs> Choice Award, he won Best Inanimate Object. Wilson the Volleyball is an Oscar, no, not Oscar winning, Critics' Choice winning. Actor, ball, inanimate object. Um, so yeah, that's a second mini fact. Also, when they did an online auction um, of castaway artifacts, Wilson was sold for eighteen thousand four hundred dollars, which is How? Uh, he was lost in at sea. They don't know where he is. We saw him. He floated off. Whoever found it. Oh my god, I found that part in the script as well. When I was looking through the draft of the script, it's just as heartbreaking on the page. Can't it's, can it's handle horrifying. it. Cannot do it. Does Wilson have dialogue? Is he going, oh, don't leave me! <laughs> Come and don't get me! Don't leave me, Chuck! You Chuck. bastard! <laughs> Why are you swimming away? Maybe that astronaut who went down and got the heart of the ocean from the Titanic also mm-hmm. found Wilson. So this- maybe Britney Spears has it, is what I'm saying, <gasps> on Mars. <laughs> well, obviously, that would explain so much about everything that's happened in the last 20 years. Uh, but hey, have you guys ever seen the footage on from Star Wars, any of the Star Wars movies, where Peter Mayhew is delivering his Chewbacca lines in that <laughs> gruff Yorkshire accent of his? Have you ever seen that stuff? It blows my mind. It's amazing. <laughs> so, so instead of growling, he's just going like, er, yeah, er, er. He's still <laughs> It's exactly the same thing. They wrote, they had Chewbacca's lines right. in English in the script. Mm. And he would go, you know, Ham would go, oh, look, you know, look, look that big TIE fighter type thing. I can't remember Star Wars quotes. <laughs> but look oh, at that famous uh, line. Yeah. And, uh, and instead of going, rrr, 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 Peter Mayhew would go, oh, yeah, that's a big fucking TIE fighter, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it's uh, interesting. I want to see that cut. When I spoke to Greedo last year about the whole McClunky thing, he said the same, that he had like actual written dialogue. So he has no he had no idea what McClunky meant because he didn't say any of the alien Goldigook <laughs> in that scene. He was saying actual sort of normal lines of like, oh, Jabba wants your money, whatever. Yeah, none of us... <laughs> why are none of us able to quote Star Wars? Han Solo's famous line, look at that big TIE fighter thing or whatever. And, 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 and Greedo's famous line, Jabba wants his money, I guess. I don't know. Whatever. 
What is wrong with you people? I, I'm so tired at the moment, guys. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, it's lucky I'm actually able to remember there are films called Star Wars, but uh, actual dialogue is I, beyond I me. Will, I will accept that for your lack of conversational Rodian. <laughs> this isn't my first Rodian. Um, James, you're Hello. next. Um, how long should we should we allow for this? No, it's it's a relatively condensed fact. I have taken into account the abuse that I've taken on Twitter for cut to four hours later. <laughs> and another thing, this that's what this section should be called. Yes. Right. Okay. So my fact, my fact is a Ben fact fleck, uh, and the reason <gasps> it is is because we're going to get onto Ben Affleck doing sports later on in this podcast. So I thought, why not have a Ben sporting fact? Someone on Twitter did mention this and suggest this one, mm. uh, although I believe I'd read it before, but I can't remember who that was. But thank you to that person. Um, so Ben Affleck is from Boston. Now, none of you will probably know that because he doesn't mention it or talk about it and he doesn't play a Bostonian in any of his films. He's but just packed little, a car in the yard. <laughs> little known fact, Ben Affleck is indeed from Boston and he is a dyed-in-the-wool Red Sox fan. Now, when he did Gone Girl for director David Fincher, there is a scene where his character Nick Dunn is attempting to go unrecognised in an airport and he wears a baseball cap. Now, the scene in question, because Nick Dunn is from New York, the scene in question called for him to wear... A cap for the New York Yankees. Now, Ben, of course, being a Red Sox fan, this was a very bad thing. This is like Chris. It's like if I said, Chris, for this podcast, you need to wear an Everton T-shirt for the duration of this podcast. That was pretty much his reaction to this fact. So he basically said, and this is the quote, he said, David, I love you. I would do anything for you, but I will not wear a Yankees hat. I just can't. I can't wear it because it's going to become a thing, David. It's going to become a thing. I will never hear the fucking end of it. I can't do it. And so he refused to wear this hat. Now, David Fincher, easygoing, laid-back director that he is, of course, was like, Ben, Ben, I completely understand. Wear the fucking hat. Uh, and it went on a little bit like that. So as, as Affleck has said, you know, it was like an uprising. It was a one-man riot against the Yankees. He refused to do it. He wouldn't do it, presumably because Matt Damon would have never let him live it down. Um and this stand, this sort of, this sort of standoff between the two of them went so big that it shut down production of this film for four fucking days. They stopped production of the film. Affleck wouldn't wear the cap. Fincher insisted he wear the cap. He still wouldn't wear the cap. The production stops. It's costing the studio millions of dollars. Wear the fucking cap. I'm not wearing the fucking cap. So it goes on. And it goes on. And Fincher on the director's commentary for this film basically said, he said, I really wanted it to be a Yankees cap, but inhales loudly <laughs> being from boston and not being very professional as an actor ben refused to wear a yankees cap oh. um, <laughs> she said it didn't come to blows but we did shut down production for four days and in the end in the end they did compromise and as you watch the film you will notice that uh he wears a mets cap instead so affleck refused to back down on this point he would not back down which is why nick dunn in the film gone girl wears a mets cap and not a new york Yan yankees cap uh and that that is my fact now chris to, to, mm. you need to explain this to me because obviously not being someone who gives a french horn about sport i uh i, I find this quite hard to get my head around like what, what well, would there's it no french horn for, for, for one thing so you... <laughs> what would, what would it take for you to go out wearing an everton shirt never gonna happen no but like but it, you know you're there a professional no, no you're an actor you're pretending to be another person you're not actually nick dunn so you are acting you know would you be prepared to play a character who was an Everton supporter. Jason Isaacs once told me 
because he starred in a TV movie directed by Paul Greengrass um, called The Fix, which was about mm-hmm. match fixing. And uh, Jason, like myself, is a big red. And he was playing uh, an Everton player in the film. And he told me that he wore, because he had to wear an Everton top in, course, yeah. in the film, but that he had a Liverpool t-shirt underneath it. So <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So I that, really want that to be true. So that it wouldn't yeah. touch his skin. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's harder to do with baseball caps, in fact. It's, like, it's much harder to do with baseball caps. And it's going to look silly. Yes. Yeah. Um, that, that, uh, just a quick thing about that Affleck uh, Fincher thing. I think that's the two of them having a big old inside joke as well, because that, that comes up periodically on Twitter with people trying to cancel Ben Affleck for being, you know, it came out, it flared up a few months ago as well, where someone went, have you heard this? You know, Ben Affleck's an unprofessional dickhead. And I think he and Fincher, as far as I'm aware, get on quite well and that they're just kind of busting each other's balls in public. I may be completely wrong about that, but that's my that's my understanding of the situation. Uh, but yeah, it would take a lot so one of my fantasies, not sexual, you'd be delighted to know, Thank and God. it'll never happen because I'm of a certain age now and I was never good at football in the first place. Well, one of my fantasies is that I would have become good enough at football that I would have made it to Premier League slash Division One level, right? And that Manchester United would have come in and swooped for my signature. And that I would have, in front of the world's press, they would have done this big press conference where I'm going to be signing the contract <laughs> in front of everybody. And everyone was going to be there. Alex Ferguson, you know, the chairman of Man United, the other captain, some of the other players, you know, everybody, the cast of Airplane, everyone is there in this room watching this. The world pauses. It holds its breath. I take the pen. I put my pen to the paper. I stop. I look up, I throw down the pen, I stand up, I rip open my shirt to reveal the <laughs> Liverpool shirt that I've had underneath there because I have just signed in secret for Liverpool Football Club. In the meantime, I turn around to Alex Ferguson, give him the fees, <laughs> tell him to fuck off and then run out of the room. <laughs> I've become instantly a Liverpool legend in that moment, even though I end up only playing four games for the club, um, scoring no goals, and I do my cruciate league in the uh, in the fifth game but nevertheless they build a statue to me i don't understand See, the tribalism has lost me i mean as we record this very podcast i'm sitting here in my total film boxer shorts so it just doesn't bother me in the slightest um i just don't well, get it one of my um, favorite petty liverpool everton facts is that um obviously in liverpool city center there is uh, there's, a, there's a shop for for liverpool fc and there is a shop for everton uh, where you can buy all the kits and that kind of yes, thing we all the went shopping there when center, we did the podcast tour right of course so the shopping centre in Liverpool is called Liverpool One. That's their big sort of shopping area mm. in the middle of the city. And within that, the Everton shop is called Everton Two. So Everton Two, Liverpool One. I know. It's great. It is so great. So petty. <laughs> so petty. And so unrealistic as well. <laughs> anyway, enough football frippery. Uh, Helen, what's your fact? My fact was actually suggested by someone on Twitter. So thanks to Miko V and Vienka, I apologize. I've definitely mispronounced that. Um, but it goes back to Korea, right? In the 1970s. And the big Who's name- Korea, Helen? Ha ha ha. Is Miko your Korea's advisor? Oh my goodness. So we're in <laughs> South Korea in the 1970s. The so-called Orson Welles of Korea was a, was a director called Shin Sang Ok, who was making a big deal in South Korean cinema until he fell afoul of the ruling regime that they had in South Korea as well as North Korea. And they closed his studio down in 1978. So his career was was facing a bit of a, a 
problem at that time. Um, he had apparently separated from his wife, who was the actress Choi and he. Um, around the same time, Choi was asked to go to Hong Kong uh, for a business meeting where she was abducted and taken to North Korea. A few months later, searching for her, Shin went after her and he was also abducted and taken to North Korea. Because the problem is that North Korea at the time obviously was under the, the regime of the, of the ills. Um, Kim Jong-il was in charge of the kind of propaganda arm, the cinema arm, and he was just not happy with the films being made in his own country. He was happy that they were propaganda and that they were sending the right messages, but he wasn't happy with the quality of the filmmaking. So he decided to kidnap um, the leading lights of South Korea and basically bring them up north to help. Now, initially, of course, these two were not happy to be uh, to be taken up there uh, to North Korea. They were not happy to be abducted. Understandably, uh, Choi was kept in isolation, but in a sort of a luxury apartment for the next several years. Um, Shin, however, because he really objected to the regime and probably also because he was a man, um, was taken into a very, very tough prison and left there for uh, four years, an all-male prison camp where he was literally left eating like grass and stuff in order to survive. And then finally, he was suddenly brought into the inner sanctum of King, Kim Jong-il, um, who was still the heir apparent at that point to his father, Kim Il-sung. Um, and uh, there was his wife, and they were basically made an offer that they could make films for North Korea, and then everything would be fine. So from uh, that was in the beginning of the 1980s. So they were then basically kept there for about sort of five, year, five more years, making films for North Korea. Which included <laughs> a Godzilla wannabe film called, let me get the right name here. It's a kind of a socialist Godzilla, basically. It's about a sort of peasant girl whose uh, elderly father builds uh, a sort of a dragon out of rice and then she accidentally bleeds on it and then it comes to life and then it basically destroys the emperor who is oh, kind of... That old story. I know, feeding on Ken the people. Ken Loach's Godzilla. I love it. <laughs> it is basically Ken Loach's Godzilla. Um, but yeah, he. Uh, so they made this film in, in 1985 and by that point they were kind of trusted by the regime a little bit more. They were allowed to travel out outside of North Korea under armed guard and under constant surveillance from the North Korean authorities, um, which was what happened in, in 1986 when they were sent to Vienna to sort of scout out uh, a, a new film that they were going to make. And um, they basically met up with a, a, a Japanese journalist while they were there, who was kind of an old friend of theirs, were supposed to be going out for lunch with him, when they managed to shake off their guard jump into a taxi and race to the United States Embassy, where they were able to um, convince the world that they had been there against their will because they had secretly taped Kim Jong-il saying that he abducted them in order to make films for North Korea, because otherwise everybody thought they'd, they'd been forced during all these years to proclaim their loyalty to the regime and everything else. So people initially thought that they were communists, um, but they were able to literally produce evidence saying, no, we weren't there on purpose. We were abducted. We had to make this monster movie, Pulgasari. We didn't have a choice. And and now we're back and we'd kind of like to, you know, go on with our lives. Interestingly, um, he was able to move to the US. Shin was able to move to the US, um, lived in Los Angeles. He did return to Korea sometimes. He made a couple of films there in the 90s. He also made Three Ninjas Knuckle Up, hmm. as in part of the Three Ninjas series. So that, I think is um, one of the most extraordinary film facts I've ever uh, come across. And I'm so glad that Mika introduced me to it and I did a bit more reading on it because I thought that was amazing. So here's where I am in terms of uh, judging this week's winner. I desperately 
really want to give this point to James Dyer. I genuinely do. I really genuinely do. I know James hasn't won for a while. Uh, he keeps being disqualified for the most spurious of reasons. <laughs> <laughs> this week, he hasn't learned a seventh chord. So therefore, <laughs> no, no, of course, not. I really want to give this quote, this point to James this week. However, Jimbo, you know that I already knew this fact. I knew this fact. It's been on Twitter quite a lot. Um, so I'm sorry you don't win this week. Ben, that's a good fact. A solid fact, a fine fact. Uh, Wilson will be proud. Good volleyball. Good volleyball. Yes, indeed. Uh, but uh, Helen, by I think just reading out a chapter from her forthcoming book, has won <laughs> this week's uh, fact. I don't know where that puts her in the leading board. Um, leading board? Leaderboard. Sure. Uh, but a, a point more than you had last week, which is good. So Hurrah. therefore, the winner is Helen O'Hara. Please, everybody, a round of applause. No, Wilson! <laughs> Wilson! Wilson! <laughs> Boo! Boo to me! Boo! Helen has been cast away. <laughs> Do you think he's called Chuck Noland because he's in a plane crash? Huh. Whoa, so the plane doesn't land. Yeah. Maybe it's, wow. it's not the most subtle film, so... <laughs> <laughs> It's like a I Robert Zemeckis needle but... drop. <laughs> what, what, what got him through all those years? Will, son. Uh... <laughs> oh, no. 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 Whoa. Really? Blow your mind. Whoa. <laughs> Other sporting goods companies are available. Um, okay, so that was, what was it called this week? Bill and Ted Fact the Music. Uh, if you have any other great suggestions for what we should call this section, uh, please do write in. Uh, slide into my DMs on Twitter at Chris Hewitt is the username. Let's move on now swiftly to this week's listener question. This week the question comes from, I don't, well here's the thing, I can't find the question or indeed the name of the person who sent in the question. Luckily Helen O'Hara has saved me. Helen, what's the question? Who said it? So the question is, after Chris's public struggles yesterday, which refers to a tweet you sent, what was the easiest or hardest piece you ever had to write for the mag? And that comes from at Bumbles underscore Jake. At Bumbles underscore Jake. Yes, my memory is fully jogged now. Thanks, uh, Jake or Bumbles, if that is indeed your real name for, for that. Yes, what this is referring to is I was writing a feature the other day, the identity of which shall remain a uh, secret for the next few weeks at least. Uh, but I was writing a feature the other day and um, uh, I, I did a I did a tweet going, the, you know, people who tell you the first sentence of any feature is the hardest are full of shit, essentially. Mm. It's actually the second. The third's pretty <laughs> tough. The fourth is also very tough. The fifth and so on and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, but... But I was I was being a little bit I was exaggerating for comedic effect on Twitter. Uh, having said that, I finished that feature at three in the morning. Uh, <laughs> but that's mainly because of my unique approach to features, uh, <laughs> which is um, I try not to write them. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I do anything in my power to avoid writing them. Uh, genuinely, some, I don't know what you guys. This this may be interesting to listeners. It may not be, but I don't know. You know, this this might be an interesting chat about our, our different approaches to to feature writing, uh, because I tend to be of the school of write a bit, reward myself with a thirty minute break, come back, write a little bit more. Sometimes even just a sentence. Then I'll go on YouTube. <laughs> then I'll check Twitter. Then I'll think, oh, I should probably write another sentence. And so it takes it takes a while 
to form. Uh, but I also I also leave features. Uh, James will know this uh, historically. I it's also the leave, day before they're due. Yes, I very much I very much adopt the A level exam technique. Um, <laughs> it's not I, really a technique, Chris. <laughs> it, it's worked for me, Helen, all, all through my life. I wait until the the I wait until the the deadline is upon us. Very Douglas Adams style. I love deadlines. I love the wishing noise they make as they fly past. Um, that's very much my approach. So I tend to write features. I have started features at midnight, the night before the due in. Good lord! That's how I work. That's I'm how getting I anxiety roll. just yeah, I'm imagining just, just that. Hearing about it, and <laughs> uh, this this may this may not be everyone's um, experience either. But the way I write features is I have a very rough plan of where I'm going. I don't do an awful lot until I have the first sentence in my head. The first sentence is hugely important for me. Uh, you know, it's like Alan Partridge right away. You got them by the chaffers kind of thing. You know, you, you got to have a grabber in the, in the, in the opening sentence. Uh, and so there have been instances. I remember once writing, I think it was born ultimatum feature that I rewrote it completely at midnight, the night before it was due in. I had written it. I actually had done, I'd done okay. I had written it. And then I came up with a completely different first sentence that pre- that meant I had to rewrite the entire feature. And I started that at midnight the <laughs> night before. And one other quirk that I do as well, and this again, is, I'm sure this isn't uh, the same for every journalist, but I uh, I have the quotes in my, I have all the transcripts of all the interviews. So I have those all and I, I read them beforehand and I've obviously done the interview. So I have rough idea of what I need from people and where the, where the quotes are. And so I will write the feature without quotes and so uh, it's it's me blah 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 flowery flowery nonsense blah 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 overriding 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 and then it'll be insert quote here and then blah 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 insert quote here and then at the end i go back and i grab the quotes and i put them in and then i finesse it a little bit but that that leads to things that like you've told me about cases where you're like well i've done the feature it's three thousand words long and it doesn't have any quotes in it yet and yes (laughs) it's supposed to be 1800 words so i've got a bit of cutting to do a little bit of cutting. But, but, and you're the only person I've ever encountered who does that, does that madness. But what it does do is it means that the prose stands on its own. Because you often get a lot of people, they kind of quote link where it's quote and then a bit of copy to link quotes together. And you end up with the piece being a slave to the quotes instead of the quote servicing the piece. So I think you sidestep that very nicely by not putting any quotes in at all and just making it, was that, you know, stand on its own. Was that a compliment? Did you just compliment oh me? God, you know, you're obviously a bang me bang. But, uh, <laughs> There he is. There he is again. I occasionally like the things you write. (laughs) Wow. Steady. Chris, you need to sit down. That was was a lot. I'm already sitting down, but I need to sit down again. (laughs) I need to lower my chair in the Johnny English style. Just give me a second. Anyway, anyway, but yeah, that's the, that's the way I work. It's madness. But uh, how do you guys work? What, what do you do? And have you had any nightmare experiences uh, whilst mm. writing a feature for Empire? See, I'm the opposite of you. I write, like, since I'm given the feature, I, like, begin work on it. Like, I, I like to get it done as early as possible. It's like I used to at university, and I became famous for this, that uh, I'd get all the assignments at the beginning of the year uh, on the first week of term, and I would, I would fuck off to the library, research all all of the stuff, write all of my assignments, hand them in in the second week of term, be like, and I'm done with this module. <laughs> and that's it. And, and I, it became a, a, an ongoing thing. It's just a thing that I would do. It's because I don't, I, I'm the opposite of you. I hate deadlines. I find they give me anxiety and they make me really stressed. So I'm like, if I do it as quickly as humanly possible, it, it reduces the stress caused by the piece. Um, 
yeah i'm i'm see i always like you you write very easily like you, you sort of like storm through it in a night i'm quite an anxious writer uh writing often gives me conniptions and uh i've i've had a number of them i've done a couple of last minute ones i remember writing my nine thousand word arnold schwarzenegger piece sending it to you and nick it was due on monday morning i sent it to you on saturday and you came back and went yeah it's not very good <laughs> And I rewrote the entire thing on Sunday afternoon. That was 9,000 words. That was a monstrous <laughs> bit of writing. And I did all of that in a day. That said, the second draft of it came a lot easier and it was a lot better. Um, but I think, do you not find, like, I find the things you're closest to are the things that always kill you mm -hmm. to write. Like, if you don't care about it, like, I wrote, I've written a couple, my, my 2012 feature, I did it in about four hours. It was loads of fun. <laughs> I loved it because I just didn't give a shit. But my Star Wars features, in particular the Force Awakens one, I genuinely feel I left a pound of flesh on an altar somewhere writing that. Like, it destroyed me. The, the the amount of stress and anxiety I went through trying to get that on paper, it just nearly killed me. Um, and Because if you feel really passionate about it, you're like, but you don't understand. You must understand by the time <laughs> yes, you finish reading exactly this. exactly that. And it, like, it has to be good. And you're like, I'm letting everyone down. This is so important. It's just huge. It's a world exclusive on this biggest film. And oh, my God. Um, yeah. So I, I've had my share of of absolute breakdowns but i always think it's nice that like when i did john wick too like when you do a piece where surprisingly out of nowhere it just flows mm -hmm. and it's so easy and you're like well that was effortless i'm amazing i am and the then john wick of writing i just <laughs> shot that <laughs> feature in the head i am the baba yaga of words <laughs> and then someone gives you something else and then you spend like a week and a half because that force awakens thing i spent literally a week on it um and it, and it nearly murderized me so I, I don't know about you guys but yes i i go through all sorts of hell when i write it's who's the famous famous author once wrote uh I hate writing. I love having written. And I think that's my relationship with writing. Mm. I like looking back on pieces I've written thinking, oh, I'm, I really like that. But when I'm writing it, I would rather be anywhere else on earth. I would take any Faustian pack to have any other job in the world than having to do it because it nearly kills me. The tyranny of the blank page, yeah. Yeah. Helen, I have, I have seen you. I have, I have literally sat in a coffee shop with you and watched you write a what was it 600 word re review which mm. is the one i hate writing reviews hate it. <laughs> hate it if you pay i i know i was technically meant to be part of my job and i'm technically a film <laughs> critic but if you paid me tomorrow if you said to me tomorrow you don't have to write any reviews ever again i would fall to my knees and kiss your feet I, yes please thank you very much thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you it's the hardest part of the job mm, for me by a country mile hate it Helen, yeah. I've yeah. watched you write a fantastic review. I mean, you're so quick and you're, you're you know, <laughs> sorry, this feels a little bit like a circle <laughs> jerk, but you know, this is, you know, you're so quick and you're so good at writing reviews. And I've always had this, this picture of you because, you know, because I know you, uh, you're quite methodical and quite mannered and organized in terms of your writing, yeah. but you sit down and those, those reviews, you just dash them off and they're great. So is that your approach as well in terms of writing other stuff, features and whatnot? I think my approach is somewhere between you two, actually. Um, I... Well, between Bono and the Edge. <laughs> yes, between Bono and the Edge, but between uh, the two of you as well. Like, I'm, I'm not as, um, I must have this feature written three weeks in advance as James is, um, but equally I'm not leaving it until 3 a.m. because sleep is awesome, guys. I don't know if you tried it, but it's super good. So I will say, as I've got older, I find it f harder and harder and harder yeah. to do that. Uh, yeah. And now, I, instead of writing through the night, I tend to get up at four 
Not better, Chris. But it means at least, you know, because I, I can't do the thing where I, I, I'm, oh, sleep, 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 sleep. So I'll sleep and then get up. And anyway, anyway, carry on. But yeah, so um, in terms of reviews, there's definitely been difficult ones. My approach tends to be to start in the middle, actually, and not sweat the first sentence until I kind of know, you know, I know there's things I'm going to have to at some point say. I know I'm going to have to talk about a vague idea of the plot and I'm going to have to talk about a vague idea of you know, who was involved and stuff. So I kind of start with that stuff. You do a George Lucas, episode four, A New Hope. That's exactly (laughs) it. And and I write four, five, and six. And then then I pretend that I had a plan for one, two, and three. (laughs) Go back to the prequels. And then, like, somebody else has to finish seven, eight, and nine, because fuck knows. So, yeah. yeah. And it all goes horribly wrong in the end. (laughs) No, it doesn't. (laughs) And it does. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so, and I I, I also kind of have have no shame about sending in something where I've got a structure... I'm happy with, but I'm maybe not over the moon about because I kind of trust we we've had great features editors at Empire, so I kind of trust that Nick or Dan before him or Alex at the moment will kind of be able to tell me, no, this bit sucks. You need to redo this bit. I'm like, I don't have any ego about that. I'm like, fine. I can. I I would rather hear it at this point than stay up all night fretting over possibly yeah. nothing because sometimes mm-hmm. the bits where I think are that I'm not sure about are the ones they love and vice versa. So. Eh, you know, so there comes a point See, where I just I cut my losses. But in terms of reviews, um, it's a similar thing. So I've, I've, yeah, I, I tend to be the person we call when, you know, the embargo is up like an hour after Demon the screening. Demon fingers O'Hara. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I, but th- that is only stressful when it is a film that I'm. There's a lot invested. Like I've talked about this before. Like an but the, end game. The, for, the end game, but The Force Awakens was the one because I couldn't discuss that with anyone because only they would only let one person into the screening. So there was no standing around and having a chat after it and, you know, kind of coalescing your thoughts and, and talking to other people and, and being challenged on. It was none of that. It doesn't it help. just that's a screening. How, that's how people can sidle up to you and go, oh, yeah. Yoda with a lightsaber. Oh, yeah, five that deserves stars, five mate. stars. I'll give that five stars, mate. Oh, yeah. And then, and then you've sealed your your fate. Maybe it would have been worse, but but literally, like I I I had to turn that one around, and it was a little bit more time than Endgame or Infinity War, but it was more pressure actually than either because those mm. I had about thirty five minutes to write, and it was by eight hundred words. The Force Awakens, though, Empire's history with Star Wars reviews. <laughs> Such a long time. The shadow of Hewitt looms large. Yeah, I mean, it was it was terrifying, frankly. So, and I did get something wrong, and we had to go back and correct it. So that was great. What did you get wrong? I've forgotten that. I misattributed. I misattributed a quote. Um, I had written down notes, but I just misread my yeah, notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had to change that next time. Uh, plus, you gave it two stars too many. But then, who oh am I to talk? Unbelievable. No, I will stand by that. One. I will. Do we have time to do this? Do we have time to, <laughs> to fight this out? See, I the, the thought of sending in an unfinished feature actually now it's gives not, me I'm cold not unfinished, sweats. But I'm just like I'm like I'm I'm happy with it. Like if it went on the page like that, I'm oh, happy see, with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, like. Yeah. I'm okay if they come back to me and say, no, this bit needs to be changed. Cause I'm like, you know, I'll take that. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I don't feel like I know everything. Nick says to me, I'm pretty sure this comma should be a semicolon. I'm like, get out, get out. Don't talk to me. Fuck you. <laughs> who, who are you to question me? Who are you me? to comment on my prose, <laughs> you scum. In, in fairness, if you get a semicolon wrong, that I would be upset about, but yeah. you know. You need to get semicolonic irrigation. Hey, no. Jesus. Uh, Benjamin, 
you've been at Empire for just a couple of years now, uh, but what's your experience? Because what, 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 you've recently wrote, wrote a feature on Janelle Monet. Now, I know you're a huge Janelle Monet fan, or as my uh, Google Home calls her, Janelle Monet. <laughs> it can't handle that? that accent over the A. It's yeah, just, the, it's just uh, like, Siri doesn't like that. <laughs> hey, Google, play Janelle Monet. Playing Janelle Mona. No, no. <laughs> no. And then you go, hang on, have I been getting that wrong? It's Google, right? Anyway, you're a huge fan. You got the interviewer. And then you have that thing that we've all had of how do you translate this into a, a readable piece? Yeah, I mean, that was a, an interesting one because... Um, it's sometimes you have this situation where you, you, you do an interview and it's it's one interview, that is your piece. So you have to really sort of prepare to go into it knowing um, to an extent where you want to go, but being able to go with the conversation so that when you transcribe that, it's just sort of shaping up a little bit and and there's your piece. So there's a there's a pressure to that more in the in the preparation. Um and with that one as well, it was like half like I know her stuff so well. I've followed her for so long that I, I just, and who she is is so out there in everything that she does. So it's like, I, I know totally what she's getting at. And then on the other hand of putting so much pressure on yourself that you're like, this is one of my idols. I need it to go okay. And I hope it's good. And, um, yeah, it was great. And I'm really pleased with, with how that piece turned out. I mean, the substance of what she says, everything is just everything that comes out of her mouth is is gold. Um, so I was really lucky that basically like she did most of the feature for me because everything that she says, it's like, that that is great. That would be the center of your of your piece if you were sort of doing it a different way. I mean, I, I really like, I, I kind of fall on the closer towards the Chris Hewitt end of the chaos spectrum, um, but with the neuroticism of the James Dyer end of the scale. So I am the sort of like, I kind of find it as I go and I write something and I am constantly rewriting what I'm what I've already written as I Mm, progress through same same oh yeah and at the same time going oh my god I have let myself down I've let the editor down I've let everyone I've ever known down (laughs) my parents will disown me um and just going like it's okay I know it's gone wrong so when I when someone tells me it's gone wrong I've already made my peace with that um, yep. <laughs> and then, then you send it in and the editor says, oh, this this is really great. And then you're like, okay, thank God, thank God. Um, I'm really lucky. I've never had a, um, I've never had like a nightmare scenario. And uh, with Note the other self, feature, <laughs> yeah, James is going to give me the worst feedback I've ever had. Um, when I did the Shazam feature, that was just an interesting experience of, I'd never done a feature like that before where I'd done loads of interviews i've done something like i don't know seven or eight interviews for this mm. one piece and you have everything that you have seen from your set visit you've got all of your notes but at the same time you haven't seen the film you've seen the mm. trailers they've put out you've you've maybe been told stuff at, at the studio when you when you go for the set visit so i found it a really interesting ex- experience of having all of this material and i had printed everything out that i had i physically printed out copies and put it all the way over a desk like some kind of mad serial killer um <laughs> but there was a point where it just sort of clicked of the whole thing is swirling in your head what you know yeah. of the plot what the context of the whole thing is um what people said to you in the interviews what has started to come out sort of promo wise that gives you a sense of how it's turned out and it's all these things that are swirling around in your head and there was a moment where it was just like oh this is the story this element this this is the through line and everything mm-hmm. sort of revolves around that. And and the process of working out what that central thread is, is so satisfying. It's like mm. it, that 
means that then everything sort of falls into place around it or you have an idea of all these other things that you have where it fits in that story because you're telling a story when you write a feature like that or even when you're writing a review you're you're summing up what's good or bad about a film but you are telling a story you are setting up context you are explaining what this film is where it comes from and why it's good or why it's bad mm. um so i always approach it that way of like if mm. i'm telling this as a story what is the yeah. factual but also interesting story to tell. Mm, yeah, hundred percent. That's where a lot of a lot of uh, sort of people who come in quite young to this don't realise that it's like, what is the story? You are telling a story. If there's no story to tell. You don't have a feature. It doesn't matter how many quotes you've got. So it's finding out what that story is and then finding a way to construct it. But you can do reviews two different ways. I always think you can you can do them in a much more analytical, practical way, which is what is my critical analysis of this film and should people go and see it? And a lot of people approach reviews that way. And I think Empire as a whole, takes more of a storytelling approach with our reviews, where it's like, what story can I tell while informing people about this film? Like, how can I make this entertaining as well as informative? This is why reviews are such a bastard to write. <laughs> yes, indeed. I mean, there's loads to talk about. I hope that wasn't too inside baseball for people. Um, but that is it for our listener question section. If you want to have your question read out on the Empire podcast, then you can get in touch via a number of methods. But mainly these days is Twitter. <laughs> so there's Facebook and there's email, podcast at empireonline.com, obviously. But mainly it's Twitter. Mainly reply to me on Twitter or send me DMs on Twitter or just send me questions. Use the hashtag EmpirePodcast or chances are I won't see it. But uh, that is your best bet of having a question read out on the Empire Podcast as Bumbles underscore Jake found to his cost. Time now for this week's guest, and it is a cracking guest returning to the podcast triumphantly, of course. Uh, he's been on numerous times before, is the wonderful James McAvoy, uh, who doesn't have a film out, doesn't have a TV show out, but he has an audio series out, and a really fascinating audio series as well, because he plays essentially the title role in an adaptation of Neil Gaiman's groundbreaking comic book, The Sandman which has been adapted by Audible into an audio series with an incredible cast. So you have the aforementioned Mr. McAvoy, you have Taron Egerton, you have Michael Sheen, you have Kat Dennings. It's a great, great cast. Uh, I've listened to a few of the episodes and it it brings Game and Story to Life in a way that is very, very surprising and feels right for the audio format, I would say. Uh, so I, I jumped onto Squadcast earlier this week with uh, James McAvoy and we talked about his geekdom, we talked about Sandman and we talked about FIFA, as you might expect. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast, in lockdown, of course, because we're responsible that way, by James McAvoy. How are you, sir? Very well, thank you. How are you, Chris? Oh, you know, not too bad. <laughs> Fighting the good fight <laughs> on a daily basis. Uh, but you're pretty damn busy, whether it's, you know, procuring masks in their thousands or yeah. losing horribly at FIFA I or did, making Star well, Force 2. I think, um, I think when you say lose horribly, I don't think I lost quite as badly as some of the other rest of the world, guys. I was... I'm like immensely outclassed in um in soccer aid, uh, e soccer aid. But um so the fact that I kept it to two nil was actually that was good work for me, I thought. <laughs> yeah, two nil was alright. Two nil was okay. But you know, I only saw the highlights, the condensed highlights of your game against Liam Payne. So did you like carve out any chances at all? Because the highlights were very one sided. Look, I got one shot on target with Pelly, alright? It's uh it wasn't a great day at the office, all right? But it was all for a good cause. It was all for yep. a good cause. And it was all fun yeah. games. But uh, but otherwise, you've been keeping yourself busy. You, you, you've been procuring loads of masks, which is which is great. 
Yeah, that's sort of quietened down a little bit now. It seems like the PPE, the flow of PPE seems to be um, in hand now and the NHS and the government and all that, they've got their handle on it. So we, if that, that uh, thrust of what uh, masks for NHS heroes was trying to do seems to be less necessary. But that campaign and the guys that helped logistically make that happen, they've actually been working really well with the government and helped the government um, secure different supply channels and stuff like that as well. So it's it's pretty good. And the government then helped back, and it was it was a really fruitful thing. But it had to be done quickly, and it needed to be secured in a kind of condensed period of time. Um, because that is when it was needed. Do you know what I mean, now it seems to be a little mm. bit less uh, of an issue. But uh, but yeah, there's you know there's a lot of there's a lot of issues and a lot of um, there's a lot of causes that are going to be uh, coming up as we you know hopefully recover from from COVID and lockdown and all that kind of stuff. Um, so even if we are doing okay, there's going to be a lot of fallout for it. So we're supporting a few different um, schemes. One of them is to help performers and anybody who works in the theatre business and all that kind of stuff. The government have just announced a, a over a billion uh, relief package, but that's got to be shared by museums and zoos and libraries and all sorts of things. So um, actually, I can't tell you who it is right now because mm. we haven't announced it, but we'll try to put together a, another uh, package led by performers and um, people in the business as well to try and help contribute and spread the wealth. That'll be coming out in the next few days. And, um, and yes, yeah, supporting a, a really good um, a really really good uh, initiative in Philadelphia called Give and Go Athletics mm. which tries to look after the mental welfare of um, kids who might otherwise fall by the wayside and at the same time provide physical education in the form of basketball so it's um, yeah there's lots to do in terms of that and then of course the Star Force and Star Force 2 which is probably the crowning <laughs> achievement in my career yeah I just I just watched Star Force 2 the other day it's a, it's a long watch. It's 13 minutes. It's 13 minutes. I mean, in the best... Uh, listen, I mean this with all the love in the world, but what the hell did I just watch? I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's- We're very, very proud of it. It was um, the work of, uh, of extreme extreme uh, care, attention, and dedication. Um, <laughs> it was... Yeah, look, the guys put together a really good thing to begin with. They did like an L.A. Noir thing, and then they did a sort of Lord of the Rings type thing. And then my neighbour, who's a good pal of mine, Stephen from uh, Stephen Cree, Stephen from Cree, he, he he asked if I'd be willing to join, and then they were going to do a Star Trek one, and I was like. I love Star Trek, so it was it was very very exciting to get involved in that. And then, of course, the Sandman. Yeah, Sandman. Uh, his uh, that was that was an intense period of work um, because we had twenty episodes to get through, and I was meant to do it when I was in London doing Cyrano de Bergerac on stage, um, but my voice was so battered from doing that every night that I said to him, "Look, guys, can we please put this off until after the show?" is over and then the show was over and then I had to go to Wales to shoot something for his dark materials mm. so that put it back even further and then by the time that we actually had time to shoot or record Sandman we were in lockdown and it was like oh this is never going to happen so I was I'm playing Morpheus and I'm literally the last member of the cast to be recorded so what <laughs> was really good I got to listen to all the episodes uh, with everybody else doing their great work and actually it was really good for orientating myself oh, that's fantastic so so the episodes have been assembled because um, I've listened to a couple of the episodes and they're fantastic I mean they're wa- oh, great. wonderful soundscapes you have a finished score you've got Neil Gaiman doing the narration and it, I know. It, because initially whenever I heard there was a Sandman audio, audio series is what I'm going to call it 
uh, I try to get my head around it because this is such a visual medium, obviously adapting such yeah. a visual medium for an audio medium. It just didn't really seem to, to make sense, but it's it's great. Now, our director, Dirk Maggs, has got a lot of history in doing things that are apparently extremely visual and working with uh, Neil's work as well, but doing stuff that are seemingly extremely visual and effects laden and world creating and all that kind of stuff. Um, and he's just fantastic at doing that all through a soundscape and really being bold enough and brave enough to use the the medium of of what do we call it uh audio because we don't call it mm. radio it's not radio drama because it's not on the radio and we don't call it it's not an audio book so yeah. it's it's audible drama um camilla any any <laughs> any advice on what we call it Thumbs up from Audible Drama. Camilla from Audible is listening in. It's called a sound drama. It's ear drama. And uh, directly from Dramir. Dramir. Yeah, I like it. Working title. Dramir Ramir. And um, he's really, really good at just building that world and, and not actually excluding the imagination of the audience because they can't see anything, but actually enhancing the imagination of the audience because they can't see. So their imagination is engaged even more. Mm. Um, but you just need to make sure that you're very detailed in what you're delivering vocally as well. The episodes you listened to, they were pretty much finished. And then was there a guide voice for, for you, for Morpheus? A guide voice? Yeah. Uh, yes, there was. There was different people. I think they had uh, every episode they did they'd have whoever was in that day just reading my lines to just be a placeholder. So I had Taron Edgerton, I had uh, Michael Sheen, and I had all sorts of people. Uh, Kat Dennings was reading my line at one point. Uh, so it was good. It was like I got to steal from all their good stuff and um, reject their shit stuff. <laughs> I was going to say, because your, your accent changes wildly from scene to scene. <laughs> it's just, it does, it's all over the place. <laughs> I know. It's, as per usual, Chris. <laughs> Me and Michael Gambon. <laughs> how did you decide on a voice on how to approach this character? Um, I can't remember now. I think it was important. That's no, cast your mind back four weeks ago. Okay, can you remember? Um, I can't really remember. I think I was quite. He's very other. He's not like Mister Spock. Um, he does feel. He does have emotions. He does react. He does have compulsions. Um, but he. But he isn't human. So it was important for him to sound other and outside and different from. But at the same time, he's your protagonist in so many ways. And it's important for him to, for the audience to be able to enjoy his reactions and his feelings towards things, not just have him rock, walking about being, hmm, logical, illogical. And he's not that kind of being anyway. So mm. it was important that he sounded regal because they're almost royalty, these these princes, these queens, these kings of dream and desire and despair and all these things. And I guess that was important. So we kind of, we went for a kind of classical sound, but it was also important for him to be quite thoughtful, I thought, take his time with his words, um, take his time trying to come back to himself because he's been at the beginning of the show he's he's been imprisoned for decades and um as such he's kind of rebuilding himself throughout the first 20 episodes mm. and coming back into his stride and his struts and his power again so um to have vulnerability but to still have a kind of regal detachment from the the everyday goings on of humanity as well at the same time is totally understanding that he's a servant of humanity in in so many ways um so yeah, that's still not a great answer, but it's lots of words. <laughs> 
And was this something that uh, you jumped at the chance when it when it came to, came your way because it's yeah. the Sandman. It's Neil. It's also it's Neil. I just love the worlds he builds, the characters he builds, the choices he makes, the the controversial moments that he plays with. The I don't know the the daringness to take the world of DC and turn it basically not really use any of those characters as well and just actually go off on a a story that's about a, a prince of the dream realm and just go in a completely different direction. He's so experimental, he's so inventive and he's so inquisitive as a writer and it's just, it, it's a joy to be a part of his stuff. Um, and I read, I've been reading him since I was a kid and, and I'll read everything that he writes now as well. He's just, he's fantastic. Plus I enjoyed Sandman years ago. Um, I hadn't read it all. Um, and it had been a long time since I'd picked it up. But I knew it was special as well, so it was easy to jump in straight away. I just said yes immediately, basically. <laughs> they just went, Neil Gaiman, Lurs, and you went, yep, yeah, I'm in. Yeah, and Dirk as well, knowing that Dirk Maggs was directing, and he's so special at doing this stuff. I don't think there's a lot of people who can do what he does um, and make it as vibrant and uh, entertaining and and. F- just full to the brim of life uh, as he does. And that, so I knew that somebody was going to do it right. Of course, you're famously uh, a big old geek. Relatively borderline. I yeah. would say, I would say you're a geek, um, and, but you've, uh, you've been kind of ticking him off. You've been almost like you've been doing a bucket list of geek properties, you know, whether it's, whether it's this or, or X-Men or, you know, even, you know, Mark Miller's, you know, or Mr. Tumnus, you've got, or his dark materials for God's sake. I know. You've been ticking him off one by one. I know. I know. I'm trying to think what's next on my, my hit list. Um, I don't know. I really don't know. There's just so many things out there I don't even know I want to be involved in. And then they come along and I'm like, ah, I was a fan of that when I was a kid. Or I just read that three months ago. Or um, I wouldn't mind doing some sci-fi. I feel like it's been a long time since I did any sci-fi. Hence Star Force and Star Force 2. <laughs> yeah. um, but other than that, yeah, I just enjoy... I think some people find these things frivolous or silly, and I don't, actually. I think sometimes we're freed from the context of the kitchen sink and the the context of naturalism and reality and taxpaying characters, do you know what I mean? Mm. And you actually get to examine sometimes even bigger moments, bigger emotions, bigger issues, because you're freed from the the restraint or the tyranny of naturalism and reality. Mm. And you get to just explore life and the the experience of being alive, you know. Mm. So would you say was was Star Trek the thing that, that kind of set you off in your path in a way when you when you were growing up? Um no I think I mean, my on the path of what geekdom, geekdom or, or you know, such you know, so to speak. And uh, I think it was weird. I had quite a hard in. I mean, the first book I read myself was was probably George's Marvelous Medicine, and then from there I went to the Lord of the Rings, and all three of them when I was at like eleven or twelve, and um, and. And from there, I went into the Belgariad and the Silmarillion. Oh, you read the Silmarillion? I read the Silmarillion. Silmarillion's like a tough read even now because yeah. it's so high poetry and high high fantasy, you know? Um, and also, it's a history of a fake world that didn't exist. So you're like, this is so hard to get your head around sometimes, but there's such beautiful stories in there as well. Um, but the Belgariad, which was um, David Eddings, I think, okay. wrote them, yeah. uh, which was sort of another sort of high fantasy 
epic saga with 5,000 books, the Malorian, all that kind of stuff. And they, they probably got me right into it. And then I started reading Dragonlance. There was a lot of fantasy to begin with. Um, and then it kind of bled into Star Trek when Star Trek, like the next gen came on. Star Trek next gen was huge for me. And, and, um, uh, and my my love of that show, being freed of the context of everyday life and free of the context of reality and stuff, putting it in space, but they're still just actually examining moral issues that we all face today, freed us from the tyranny of having to be realistic and meant we could just focus on the issues. That was what I loved about Star Trek. And the cool uniforms and the aliens and the guns and stuff. <laughs> they were brilliant as well, but... I haven't spoken to you since It Chapter 2 came out, and I needed to ask you about your Stephen King experience. Not just your experience of working on a Stephen King movie, but your Stephen King experience. It was great. He, um, When I found out that he was going to play the curmudgeonly uh, second-hand store owner, um, it, I got really, really excited because I knew, obviously, I would be in a scene with him unless they had some horrible rewrite where one of the other characters was doing something in there. Um, and... Um, I was very nervous because one of my few experiences with the novelists or writers um, of the original sort of books, uh, when I've been involved in adaptation, it's been twice now, where they've both kind of said to me, well, you're not right for the part. And uh, and I was like, oh, great, fantastic. So uh, I got a bit worried about that. and um, But he was just very generous and he was very, very... Um, forthcoming with why he thought I was doing a good job and why he thought that I was playing Bill the way that he'd envisaged him and, and all that kind of stuff, which was really nice. Uh, and then just getting to hear him pour out some of the little tidbits and anecdotes that I've heard him give already, do you know what I mean? Stuff like saying that he was high as a kite when he wrote Cujo and he was high as a kite when he wrote It Too at times. And Because I was asking him about the turtle and because I was begging to the turtle. The, the turtle and It is... I feel like it's all the way through the book and it's this beautiful, just like metaphysical, benevolent, godlike figure that you barely read about, but it's seeded throughout the entire mm. book. And um, every now and again, the characters will just say something about the turtle and they don't even know why they said it. You know, I mean, they go like, the turtle can't save us. Uh, so I was big into the turtle. The turtle made a, I don't think made any appearances in the film, but. Um, but I was begging to ask him. So he was like, well, James, you know. <laughs> I was high as a kite when I wrote it, so I don't really have an answer for you. <laughs> I was like, all right, come on. Yeah, isn't, I think it's either Cujo he can't remember writing. or it's- He wrote it in three days. His famous quote is like, well, you know. I wrote Cujo in three days and I can't remember a thing. And you're like, because he, he always says, you know. <laughs> If I'd been in a room with Stephen King, I don't know if you can see behind me, there's a few books on my, on my bookshelf. Uh, I would have peppered that man with questions, mainly about Cujo. He's just, he was fantastic. But I thought he did a really good job in the film as well. And um, I thought he was really, really like well, well placed in the cast as well. I thought he did a great job. And before I let you go, is Star Force coming back for a third installment? I don't know. It's, I think that's really up to uh, Brendan, Ross and Kevin. Um who write and direct it all. Um, but it'll be up to them. I'm up for it. Um, you know, th- we're not contracted for the third movie, so 
I'm going to, you know, we'll have to, there'll have to be a little bit of ka-ching happening here. Of course, here. of course. We don't do this for the love of it. Um, but I'd be quite interested, what would I be interested in seeing? I'd be interested in seeing Sandra, the character who's like a Vulcan, kind of like Spock. I'd be interested in seeing an episode where he gets emotion. Because you know that classic sort of Star Trek trope of Mr. Spock gets emotion for an episode and he's like, Wah! and he's in love and he wants to have sex and he's fighting and all that kind of stuff. Like when Vulcans get emotion, I think there was one episode where Spock went through puberty because they go through puberty yes. at a funny age. And um, it might be fun to do an episode where Sandra gets gets emotions. And what about the captain? Where do you see the captain going? What utensils for your kitchen do you see you using in Star, Star Force 3? Ooh, a whisk. I know I've just used a whisk. Yeah. Um, mm, I don't know, maybe a pasta maker, a pasta roller. <laughs> um, what do I see for the captain? El Capitan. Um, I don't know. He's got to have a showdown with the evil captain. Um, but I'd like to take a backseat. I think I've been quite prominent in the last two. I'd like to see a little bit more of an investigation of number uh, second in command and of Sandra. Particularly those two, I think, need to get a little bit more investigation. Okay. And is that your TV we see, that when old you is beamed onto your TV? Is that your TV? No. That's someone else's? No, I think that's Ross's TV. That's not mine. All right. Okay. Because I imagine you've got a yeah. big 65-inch, 70-inch jobby. What's, what's your... I've got a 49-inch television. Respect. It's fairly, it's, it's respectable, but it's also not, <laughs> not too ostentatious, you know. All right, excellent. And uh, the last thing, James, is are you working on anything uh, that we're, you know, because obviously it's lockdown, it's difficult. What's, what's next for you? I'm actually about to go into town and do my first thing not at home um, for three and a half months. I'm going to do a recording for a... It's sort of a game, but it's not a game as well. Um, it's something that Annapurna are putting together um, and me and a couple of other quite well-known actors who I don't want to announce because I don't think they've announced it yet um, are working on. And then there's a movie at the end of the year, which I want to do, which is super exciting and just a very interesting concept that we'll shoot all in six days and it'll be super, we'll rehearse it all and then we'll just shoot it in six days. So it's going to be nuts. Um and that, I hope that works out, but we just don't know at the moment because we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We don't know what further lockdowns or restrictions are going to happen. We don't, we just don't know. We can all say we're happen, we're doing this and it's happening and we're greenlit, but mm. I don't know, to be, to, to be a bit depressing about it, we just don't know. Theatres aren't opening. Um, cinemas seem to be opening, but I don't know how many people are going to want to go and sit in a closed cinema for a little while um, I know I don't unfortunately um, or a theatre unfortunately so what does that mean for film production and TV production we're going to need lots of it to fill up our TV screens because people may be staying at home mm. more we're going to need more audio work because people are going to be using that more but in terms of actual film for the, the cinema film for the theatre I don't know man I just don't know do you miss it? Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I'm at to work now. I was I was on my first day of His Dark Materials for season two. I was only in one episode of season two, but it was sort of my episode. It was like Lord Asriel's ep, mm. which doesn't exist in the second book. Mm. Um, but Philip gave us the go-ahead to go and do something special just about him and find out what he'd done. And he gave us a lot of material to work with. And we were 
day one day into shooting that and Boris called the lockdown so it's gone now unfortunately so I'm barely going to be in season two anymore oh, and, shit. Uh, it's a real shame shit so I am I'm itchy to to go back to work and film something but I was lucky I managed to get Cyrano de Bergerac out of my system yeah uh, completely before the lockdown struck so um, and we were meant to be in Brooklyn with that taking it to BAM and showing it off in America but again that never happened because of the lockdown so you know we'll get it all back it's just going to be it just feels like a long and and uh, tricky and um, sort of we've got to be on a careful path you know what I mean uh, and in the meantime we'll have film and telly and audible uh, work <laughs> to keep us going at home see that's a professional it brings it right back at the end that's what I like. Brings it right back to Audible Sandman coming to ears <laughs> on your head soon. Sandman, 15th of July. Stream it into your ear balls. <laughs> then. See? I don't talk like this and I'm not as stupid as this because I've got Neil Gaming writing for me and he's real clever. Not like ear balls. <laughs> it's a drama year coming to your ear balls on July 15th starring this a man. Drama year. And you've just proved you haven't forgotten how to act. That was glorious. Thanks very much, man. I appreciate it. Brilliant. James McAvoy, always a pleasure. Cheers, man. All the best. Bye. Okay, so that was James McAvoy. And The Sandman, as you heard, is out on July 15th only on Audible. And now it is time to delve deep into this week's movie news. What has been happening, folks? I think we should start with Black Widow. And I think Helen should tell us about it. So we broke the news uh, this week about the baton passing from Scarlett Johansson to Florence Pugh. But Helen was the one who who gathered that quote with her own two hands. So Helen, why don't you tell us about it? (laughs) Yes, I did. So this was director Kate Shortland talking about the film. And this is something we've speculated about. I think we've speculated about it on the podcast. We've certainly speculated about it between ourselves. Um, That cast You don't cast Florence Pugh as a one-off bad guy. Like She's just too good. Why would you waste her like that if you were the MCU? And it sounds like Kevin Feig and the others agree with us. Feige. Why am I doing that? Paul Feig. Anyway. You apologise. It is instant. Excommunicado. Is Kevin Feig friends with Janelle Mona? Ella has one hour to get out of London. Right. <laughs> And it sounds like Kevin Feige and Kate Shortland and all the rest basically agree with us because Kate Shortland said, and this was when I spoke to her just a few weeks ago, she said um, that Kevin Feige realised that the audience would expect an origin story. So of course we went in the opposite direction and we didn't know how great Florence Pugh would be. We knew she would be great, but we didn't know how great. So Scarlett is so gracious, like, oh, I'm handing her the baton. So it's going to propel another female storyline. Now, does this explicitly come out and say, that Florence Pugh will be a sort of a new Black Widow in the MCU? No, but it kind of implies that something like that is the outcome here and that she may be around as a continuing character going forward, which as a big fan of hers, I can only say is a good, good thing. Um, so that's that's really, really fun news as far as I'm concerned. I'm really pleased. Interesting. I, I'm interested to see where this goes. You know, mm. is she going to fill the Black Widow shaped void in the Avengers? Is that what is that what we're going to say? Perhaps. I mean, it's mm. it's basically it's an option at the very least. It's a possibility at the very least. Obviously, we don't know exactly what the outcome of this film is going to be, but it certainly sounds like Yelena is going to have a continuing role in the MCU, which is which is a very good thing. She also, by the way, Kate Shortland also talked about um, Natasha not having a funeral and how that was very much a character <gasps> decision. Spoiler. Um, for Endgame. So, you know, I feel like that's uh, that's interesting as well if you want to 
read about yeah, that. Yeah, I can... thought that was true as well because mm. she wouldn't have wanted one. Yeah, she was right. a spy. She was like, you know, undercover. Well, also getting her body is going to be pretty fucking difficult. Oh my god, Chris! It's <laughs> too soon, true. Chris. It's too soon. It's also true. The scraper of the pavement in Formier. Oh, what? Come on. <laughs> I think she'd have appreciated the symbolism of of Hulk throwing that bench very angrily. I think she would yeah, too. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. It had a name. It actually said on the bench, you don't see it, there's a plaque, in loving memory, Natasha Romanoff. And he just hurls it out yeah. into the lake. Poor old guy sitting on a bench had a really, really bad day. <laughs> no! My sandwiches! Um, uh, anyway, yes. Anyway. I'm going to try and do that at any funeral I go to from now on. I'm going to try and pick up a bench and hurl it. <laughs> yes, well done, Scoop McKenzie. That's a, that's a cracker. And uh, listen, fuck it. Let's get the big sale out of the way. That is brought to you as part of this month's empire magazine because it is new empire time and everybody's very excited it's a big screen preview so we have previewed all the films that are left and uh, <laughs> basically in hollywood and there are there are some films left and so mm. we we did brand new interviews with the likes of edgar wright and carrie fukunaga and kate shortland as you've heard uh, and we have brand new images from tons of great upcoming movies as well including the aforementioned no time to die last night soho and black widow and there's loads and loads of great stuff inside the issue uh ben what else is inside the issue uh, yeah, I mean, it really is jam-packed. Um, loads of stuff like West Side Story, Halloween Kills, which I'm sure we'll get to soon because that has sadly been delayed. But there is stuff that is not out there at all <laughs> yes. about, about Halloween Kills. We, we published an online story talking about some of those things uh, yesterday um, about the fact that it's set immediately after the, the 2018 Halloween, uh, which mm-hmm. wasn't out there before. And quite literally 10 minutes after publishing that story, <laughs> John Carpenter put out a statement saying, we regret to inform you that Halloween Kills has been pushed back to 2021. Yes, um, we, we have accidentally deleted it. Yeah. <laughs> We're making it again. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's there's tons of stuff in that preview, like loads of amazing images and, and stuff in interviews that you won't have seen anywhere else. Um, and also, as previously mentioned, my Janelle Monet interviews in there um, where she talks about wanting to play Storm in the MCU if that was ever a possibility which 100% sign me up I think she'd be amazing in that role sign Um, her up sign, sign me up just like make it happen let us see it amazing um also we have the uh, crazy story of Carol Co. Pictures, the uh, insane sort of action house of the 80s and 90s <laughs> who uh, were behind loads of the sort of Arnie and Stallone and all of that sort of action era um, is the story of that studio. We have Richard Donner revisiting The Omen. That's amazing. Richard Donner talking The Omen. And we have Michael Bean talking about all of his legendary characters, talking uh, Kyle Reese and uh, Corporal Hicks. Uh, so yes. that's a big interview feature in the magazine. Tons of stuff. Chris, in your section, you've got uh, Terry White talking to uh, John Waters about female trouble, which is part of the Do Criterion I? collection now. We have uh, Armando Iannucci breaking down the characters of... Uh, David Copperfield. There's so much stuff. We have Lena Waithe um, talking about the recent Black Lives Matter uh, protests and where that takes everything going forward in Hollywood. Um, I spoke. I spoke to the director of Hamilton. I spoke to Thomas Kale, who directed Hamilton. Um, Hamilton about Hamilton. His um, name is Alexander Hamilton. Sorry. There's a and Thomas Kale. There is a million things he hasn't done, but just you wait because he's doing a Fiddler on the <laughs> Roof uh, film next. So we spoke a bit about that and where he shouldn't feel he has to. He, um, if he were a rich man, I think he's a very rich man. I think he is. Yeah. So you know, why not do Fiddler on the Roof? So yeah, there is absolutely tons of stuff in there. It's it's such a packed issue. 
and yeah full of amazing exclusives massive interviews mm-hmm. go pick it up future yes. of hollywood the past of hollywood everything Indeed, indeed. Uh, your support throughout the pandemic and the pandemic shows no signs of stopping has been much appreciated. And uh, if you could find it in your hearts once again to buy the new issue of Empire, uh, that would be rather fine and dandy. Folks, it's available in all good, evil and virtual news agents. Also, you can go to greatmagazines.co.uk and subscribe as well through the Empire uh, website, empireonline.com. And uh, subscriptions are great. They get you bespoke subscribers covers and uh, all sorts of other stuff as well. Ben will come and live in your house for a week um, and play guitar for you. Uh, so that's that's uh, oh. that's a promise I'm making right here, right now <laughs> on the Empire podcast. So the yeah, new yeah, issue of Empire is out right now. It'll be fun, it'll be fun. Um, ben keeps himself to himself. He's very, very tidy, very, very neat. And he only needs to feed once a week. Um but never after but not midnight. not after midnight. <laughs> never after midnight, yes. <laughs> so, so there you go. If you can pick that up, we would be most grateful. But any other happenings in the worlds of actual movie news? How about the fact that Jude Law is in talks to play Captain Hook in a new Peter Pan? Yes, we're apparently short of a Peter Pan movie. It's been at least five <laughs> minutes since the last one. Um, but David Lowry is um, interested in this one and his... Um, his take on Pete's Dragon was actually really charming. So I'm kind of open to this. Certainly Jude Law, I think, would have loads of fun as Captain Hook. I'm just not sure we definitely need another Peter Pan. That's my only quibble. As long as there are no Nirvana sing-alongs, I'm potentially up for this. Um, <laughs> I think the less the less of that in my Peter Pan stories, the better. Um, yes. Yeah, Jude Law's, Jude Law's great, though. He's... Um, I, I like that he sort of oscillates between doing character dramas and entering blockbustery things. I think he'd be a fun hook. He'd be a hot hook. That might be confusing. I um, mean, aren't they all hot hooks in a way? <laughs> what? So um, you've got Dustin Hoffman in in yeah. Hook. Yeah, Jason, uh, Jason Isaacs, Isaacs Hugh, yes. Hugh Jackman. Yeah, the cartoon Hook. Yeah. Wow. The co- hang, sorry, what? I mean, come on. <laughs> He's no fox from. Robin Hood, right? No, he's I mean, no, he's not know. obviously not a fox from Robin Hood. Who's a fox from Robin Hood? Or Come Jason on. Bateman from uh, Zootopia. <laughs> yes, exactly. Now you're talking. Now you're talking. Um, or Jessica Rabbit, for that matter. But, uh, but uh, yeah, this, is, this, this could be good. So this is the latest live-action animation adaptation, isn't it? So, ergo, they're working off something pretty good, pretty decent template. Mm. Uh, David Lowry's a good director. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I'm I'm happy with this. Uh, you know, he's 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 going to look good in a in a frock coat. That's for sure. That's for sure. That is for damn sure. So there's some good news for Ready Player One fans. <sighs> if you're into that, uh, Ernie Klein's sequel to that, Ready Player Two, has got a publication date, and it will be out in November, 24th November specifically. It's being published in the US. So if you're a fan of that. There will be more. I, I don't know if this is uncool or unpopular. I really liked the film of, of Ready Player One. I, I had grievances with the book, but I thought there was it was a really fun um, adaptation. I, I just love Spielberg getting to go back to his his sort of big fun blockbuster impulses. Um, so I'm kind of not mega interested in the book, but if they if they got Spielberg back to do another film, um, I think that would get me possibly on on board. I think the film is fine. I don't think Spielberg <laughs> will rush back to make Ready Player Two. And I I have major issues with the book that have only grown over time and <laughs> I just I'm not thrilled about <laughs> another one. But I'll I'll just ignore it. It's fine. If it's for you, that's great. Have fun. You guys no, but Helen, 
the staggering mm-hmm. and dizzying imagination of, of Ernie Klein is on display here in the title alone. The yeah. sequel to Ready Player One. What could it possibly be? Mm. Ready Player Two. Oh my God. Uh, having said that, one of my favourite films of all time just added an S to the original, <laughs> <laughs> the original film. What's the sequel to Alien called? I don't know. There's more of them. Uh, uh, stick an S on it. Aliens. Fuck it. I'll do. Um, but yeah, this, title, this title is very much... It did. It worked for Predator. Um, but this is very much in the fuck it, it'll do uh, school of titles. But uh, I don't know if this is going to yield a film sequel. I don't think anyone's rushing, are they, for for a film sequel to that? Having said that, it made, I've just checked, it made $582 million worldwide, and films have got sequels off a lot less in the past. But uh, I don't know, Ready Player One feels to me like one of those movies that faded very, very quickly from the from the memory. But, uh, but who knows, maybe this will give it the jolt it needs to get Ready Player Two onto the starting grid, alongside King Kong, Godzilla, and Ken Loach. <laughs> in uh, in other news, it looks like Lee Winnell is going to direct the Ryan Gosling Wolfman. So this is the next um, Universal classic monsters movie. Obviously, um, after Lee Winnell did such an amazing job with the Invisible Man, pretty exciting to see him now moving over to the uh, Wolfman adaptation. And it sounds like from a while back, um, Ryan Gosling himself had an idea of a of a take on this character, um, and that Lee Winnell now is going to write. A screenplay, I believe, based on that idea to, and also direct it as a film. So, uh, the, I mean, yeah. the idea behind the Invisible Man was one of the greatest things about it. If mm-hmm. he, you take this character who has literally existed for over a hundred years, and come at it from a completely different angle that not only just feels fresh as a viewing experience, but actually taps into something really real and um, something that has real, yeah, sort of contemporary relevance. So the prospect, if they have a great idea for what to do with this Wolfman film, um, Winnell is a great director. I really like his work. And I think he's somebody who has, he, especially with his horror roots, has a pretty decent edge to him. So I think he'd mm. make this a, a, a sort of interesting and also hopefully scary Wolfman movie. Yeah, yeah. let's hope. Yeah. Also, I wonder if this means that um, these movies might be tied somehow. Mm. The Wolfman and the Invisible Man. I think it's entirely possible, yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. You know, there's there's one way to guarantee quality, I think, by making it not just the uh, the, the new Dark Universe or the new Universal Monsters franchise, but to have someone like Lee Manel in charge of it, you know, and Jason Blum presumably as well is going to be uh, on board also. Yeah, very, very excited about this. This sounds really, really cool. Let's see what he has. Uh, let's see what he has up his sleeve, his hairy sleeve. Anything else? Yes, David Leach is cooking up a film called Bullet Train about assassins on a train starring Brad Pitt. I don't think I've ever wanted to see anything more in my life. <laughs> unless- I'm so here for it. That train crosses paths with the train to Busan, and now it's zombies Whoa. and assassins on a train. That's <laughs> everything I've ever that. wanted. Yes. Um, so, so hang on. So this is uh, its literally just called Bullet Train. That's amazing. Yeah. How has this not been made before? That's that's incredible. That pun has been staring me in the face for years, and I—I've oh my god, I'm kicking myself. I should have written mm-hmm. that. This could have been Touching Cloth Six. <laughs> and it is—it's based on a Japanese novel um, called Maria Beetle by Kataro Isaka, uh, and there's a screenplay by Zach. Olkowicz. I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Uh, yeah, it's about five assassins who find themselves on a bullet train from Tokyo to uh, Morioka. And uh, yeah, something bad is awaiting them when they get to the terminal. Assassins on a train. Whoever makes it there alive. 
Ba, ba, oh ba. My God. I'm very excited about this. Yes, so please. Yes, please. Bullet train. Uh, deliver it directly into my eyes, uh, if you can. And uh, just very, very quickly as well. So uh, there is a new movie coming uh, called Borderland. It's an IRA thriller. Haven't seen mm-hmm. one of those in a while. They haven't gone away, you know. Uh, and it's got a cracking cast. John Boyega, Felicity Jones, Jack Rayner, and Jodie Turner-Smith. And it'll be directed by Tom and Charles Guard, and is a vengeance-fueled chase movie. This is the, according to the, uh, the the Guard brothers, fusing some pulse-ticking action with a powerful message for our times. Ooh, do like that. We're thrilled that the script, driven as much by character as by plot, has attracted such a first-rate cast. So it's an Irish paramilitary played by Jack Rayner, who witnesses the shooting of his pregnant wife at the hands of an SAA sergeant, Boyega. Uh, and when Tempest... The sergeant is sent back to London to lead a covert counter-terrorist operation. Michael joins a ruthless active service unit wreaking havoc in the capital. Uh, His mission is personal. He wants to hunt down the man responsible for his wife's death. Oh, my word. That's interesting. Uh, Helen, as as like me, you hail from the the motherland. I do. How do you feel about this? I I, look, I like everybody involved a lot. I think those are great actors and presumably there's, there's a very good reason that they signed up for this and it has an amazing script. I just, I mean, it makes the IRA sound cool, which I think is something not only should we not do as a matter of policy, but we shouldn't do it because it's not true, I don't think. And I just, Brave and you know, noble freedom fighters, according to Hollywood. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, I just feel like it's a little screwed up in that respect. Um, and also, I think it's really screwed up. You know, hopefully they're both meant to be anti-heroes here, but just on the on the basis of that synopsis, I'm not sure who I'm supposed to root for. Am I supposed to root for the terrorist or the army dude who shoots civilians? Like, which which would be better here for yeah. me to root for? I'm so maybe it's a really interesting, very nuanced approach to two extremely flawed, dangerous, murdery mm. people. Um, but unless it's that, I'm a little wary but you know as i say great great cast so so fingers crossed that it's it lives up past yeah. my expectations i mean hollywood has over the over the over the years and in the past had a habit of um casting the ira in a very positive light which you know, having grown up in the in the troubles, I, I never mm. sat well with me, and I, I, I don't know. I'm sure it never it didn't yeah, sit well, well with I you mean, either. Yeah, they they did they they do that, and they don't cast the you know loyalist paramilitaries at all. So it mm. it always presents a very weird picture of the conflict in Northern Ireland, and I think it's one that um, is presented through an astonishingly simplistic um, lens. So that's why I hope that this really will be a bit more nuanced than maybe that that synopsis sounds. I'm sure this is a synopsis meant to sell the film oh, yeah, uh, as, a, as an exciting thriller, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean it will be quite that simple on screen, so fingers crossed that it won't be. If you want nuance when it comes to Northern Ireland, you want nuance when it comes to the IRA, and you want to see that in your films, then please do get in touch. My IRA Zombies trilogy is waiting <laughs> and, and is ready to go. Uh, that's IRA Zombies, IRA Zombies 2, Invasion of the Proddy Snatchers, and of course, IRA Zombies 
Zombies 3, The Trouble with Trimbles, um, which perhaps dates it a little bit, but there you it's go. It's a little uh, dated, Chris. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I don't want I, I to update it. It's such a good pun. Anyway, uh, there is one last thing to talk about in the movie news section. It's a very, very sad piece of news. Um, we lost Ennio Morricone this week. The great, the legendary Ennio Morricone, one of the greatest movie composers of all time at the age of 91. Yeah, an astonishing career. Something like 500 different movies that he was involved with one way or another. Um, but, you know, j- just the sort of e- the highlights reel is is astonishing. Obviously, all his work with Sergio Leone, with whom he went to kindergarten. I mean, they've known they knew each other for literally ever. Um but his his work with with Leone redefined the Western, redefined what a movie score could sound like, should sound like, um, has influenced every single Western I think ever since um, the Dollars trilogy and and so on. Um, I personally came to him via the Mission. My dad had the the soundtrack of that, like a lot of people in the eighties. I think Gabriel Zobo is one of the most beautiful pieces of film music ever written, but. He also did, you know, Days of Heaven. He did The Thing. He did that incredible score for The Untouchables. He did the just heartbreaking one for Cinema Paradiso. And of course, recently, you know, came back and worked with with uh, Quentin Tarantino um, as well. So uh, he he kind of cut ran the gamut and and covered everything and could turn his hand to everything and had pop hits as well <laughs> as all of his uh, classical work and. Uh, was just an astonishing, astonishing musical talent. A lot of other composers have obviously been paying tribute to him this week and, and sort of marvelling at the fact that they maybe sit down at their piano and try and find a melody to base their, you know, their composition around. He apparently, it just came to him fully orchestrated and he just wrote that down. At midnight, and the night before it was due. Probably. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, honestly, he must have been working on that kind of time frame. I'm not saying he worked that last minute, but to produce as much as he did, he must have been just pulling it out of the air you know, in days rather than weeks. He definitely worked on your yeah. timescale, not James's, for sure. Except in the case, of course, of the uh, the Sergio Leone movies, where he did work on James's timescale because he wrote that, those scores before they, they started filming. The deadline the deadline is really... Oh, it's, 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 it's two years away, and you'll, you'll be fine. No, 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 <laughs> I need to write the music now. There were other reasons, of course, uh, but yes. I think the the good, the bad, and the ugly theme... I think stakes a very realistic claim as possibly the most famous piece of movie music of all time. If you asked anybody to sing a song th- themed to a western, the thing they will instinctively go to mm. is that is that theme. And I yeah. to have to have written this piece of music that I the sheer amount of people who will know that refrain even if they've never seen the film that that stands so much on its own as just something that defined an entire genre defined sort of what movie music could be and his scores are as cinematic as the images that they accompany and i think that is something you can just hear it literally in the music you can see the images in your head when you hear those those scores it's kind of crazy and i i have a real soft spot as well for his um 
for his hateful eight score which i thought was amazing that was a film that the first time i saw it um i yeah i I didn't really love that film and i've since gone back to it and i was so struck by how how really creepingly evil that score sounds how how doomy that sort of bro do 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 (laughs) like and and obviously it's sort of that soundtracks the whole opening sequence of the movie as it's introducing uh the characters and getting them all in this little confined space and obviously in the roadshow presentation they had the whole overture was a was a part of it and that not only just feels fitting because of tarantino's love of cinema but as a chance to say just listen to this morricone music like it's mm-hmm. it's amazing absolutely and it won him an oscar won him a, a long His long overdue oscar. oscar yeah <laughs> but he won a lifetime achievement oscar as well but it's it's staggering it's staggering. i think sometimes composers can be a bit of a blind spot with the with the academy you know, when I found out recently that Alan Silvestri has only been nominated twice, for example, and you know they had they they seem to have their favourites, and the fact that Marconi just won one traditional Oscar in his lifetime is mm. <laughs> it's fucking ridiculous. It's, madness, isn't it? <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, but he was he is he, he was one of the greats, absolutely one of the greats. Um, you're absolutely right about the good, the bad, the ugly theme, Ben. You know, the Washington Post famously got a lot of flack for uh, a headline going Ennio Morricone, who's Wah, wah, wah theme, you know, was one of the most memorable of all time. And people, but they, they were kind of correct, you know, the, phonetically, that is it. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> but he was so experimental and he was so, um, so playful as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, he made, <laughs> he made over 500 films. Uh, so, you know, we're going to have a workout out. Helen and I are about to barrel straight into a special ranking episode where we're going to somehow, along with Ian Freer and Amon Warman, try to rank Ennio Morricone's uh, best tracks. That's going to be fun. Yeah. Pretty much, pretty much that one, and then nine others. Uh, okay, but the, the great Ennio Morricone, who passed away this week at the age of 91. Okay, so now that is it for the news section, and it's time to press on into this week's reviews section, and uh, three films coming your way on your sofa multiplex. And uh, perhaps the biggest, certainly in terms of bangs and buck, is The Old Guard, the Netflix movie which sees Charlize Theron lead a team of immortal badasses. Sounds like a documentary. Could be a documentary. Are you sure this isn't a documentary, uh, James? I think Dyer? it might be. It is, in fact, a documentary, yes, Chris. That's exactly right. It is Netflix's new documentary, The Old Guard, charting the life of Adramaki of Scythia, Andy to her friends, a, a many millennia old immortal mercenary uh, and her team of immortal badasses. Uh, this is based on the graphic novel of the same name, uh, Greg Rucker, who actually... Uh, co-adapts this uh this this combo series um and it essentially it's twofold so it's the story of her and her team of immortal mercenaries who've been happily kicking ass for for many 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 hundreds of years thousands in her case only for their secret to start to come into the light of day uh, a double cross means that their secret is found out and they are trying to keep it under wraps uh, the subplot to this also sees the emergence of a new immortal Nile, played by kiki lane who has come late to the party but has found out that she is one of the undying as well now the villain in this 
as in all things really, is of course Dudley Dursley, uh, <laughs> Harry Melling. <laughs> yes, this is absolutely true, who plays the head of a large pharmaceutical company. So while this team of mercenaries have taken on Nazis and Cossacks and Genghis Khan, they are, they have their work cut out for them, taking on Big Pharma. Does he make Charlize Theron live in a cupboard under the stairs? Yes. Yes, it's true. Actually, he does lock her up. Um, so before Ben and Helen pile onto me, I did not particularly enjoy this film. But let me try and justify my position slightly first. So you would be hard-pressed to find a more James film than this. I dig Highlander. I have seen every Highlander film, including the straight TV movies. I watched every episode of the Highlander TV series and its fucking spin-off. So I am completely on board with ludicrous immortal antics. The thing with this that I think bothered me most is that it felt like a missed swing. Like It felt like this could have been a really fun... This could have been the feature version of what Warrior Nun is on Netflix at the moment. You know, loads of fun, unashamedly stupid, but just like a laugh riot and for me this just missed it at every turn that the the story they tell is kind of meandering and nonsense i wasn't interested in it i didn't love i mean harry melling for me was problematic because it was so overwrought it was slightly painful and i really liked andy as a character and i wanted to see more of her i want like highlander does this very well where you see these all these various segments from conor mcleod's past and you you get this real sense of scope and time and i think that's kind of what's missing from this film it's very rooted in the present and the moments we do see from the past of very limited in scope it's normally just her in a silly hat on a horse kind of riding in circles and there are hints this and i think this is what bugged me most about this film there are hints in this film at a more interesting story there are allusions to other things that have happened and that was a story i wanted to be told now i feel like that's a story maybe this does set itself up for a sequel maybe that's something if they do get a sequel that they will get into later on but i felt like this was a film that I had to get through to get to the more interesting one down the line. Um, and I also wanted to know more about these characters. Like some of the characters that are in here, so Luca Marinelli's character and uh, and Marwan Kanzari's character, they're these two sort of lovers who've met on opposite sides of the Crusades. And that's a lovely idea. And I didn't feel enough was done with those either. So oh for gosh. me, this film, while it had potential to be fun, A, wasn't, and B, missed the potential to be something great. I gave this two stars. I will say, I will say in retrospect that I I was torn between a two and a three. I think Dudley Dursley pulled it to two for me. I kind of maybe slightly regret not giving it a three because I maybe was a little bit harsh on it. But I just, yeah, it felt like a missed opportunity to me. This is directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood, who was going to do the, you remember the Silver Sable Black Cat film? I do remember that. Yeah, she was she was going to be handling that with. Um, I think that's kind of fallen by the wayside now. Yeah, but she, she does a really good like job on this. Two years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like the action on this is actually really decent, mm. uh, and I think the high point of this film for me is that they do quite well choreographed action sequences. And Charlize, I should say, is excellent in this as well. Obviously, in Atomic Blonde, she showed that she can kick serious amounts of ass on command, and she does that here as well, wielding a very nasty battle axe. Um, <laughs> so there is there is fun to be had here. It's not all bad. It just it could have been magnificent and it isn't so here's why james is wrong um (laughs) i had such a such a blast with this movie like i had to to take a break at one point halfway through and i find it thank you um i find it really difficult to turn off like i didn't want to turn off and i actively rushed back to the tv to finish watching it because i just was so into the characters i thought they had a really i thought um, prince by the hit a really good balance actually completely contrary to James of exactly the right amount of character background and action I don't need to know their entire life stories because it does intrigue me it does make me want to do more Um, 
the one the one criticism I will concede is that this definitely is very much an origin story for this gang, and it does sort of set up things that will presumably pay off if there are further films. So if that is something that instinctively irritates you, then you will be irritated by the aspect of this film. But apart from that, like this is a great cast. Apart, I mean, Kiki Lane, who I adored in If Beale Street Could Talk, is great as this person she who obviously good. doesn't understand what's happening to her. Matthias Schonartz, um, who is great in everything, is the fourth member of their their crew, who I don't think we've mentioned yet. You've also got Chiwetel Ejiofor in there, because of course, because great, that's fantastic. In the I world's really most like, thankless role. It's It starts off thankless. There's an element of his character that bothers me, and I think you know which one, James. But <laughs> apart from that, I think it, it, they do interesting things with him. I will admit that Harry Melling is not my favourite person in it, um, but then he's meant to be just the worst, and he is the worst. He is definitely the worst. And it, it, it feels right to me and it feels uh, instinctively interesting to the idea that if there were immortals, it would be Big Pharma hunting them down and not the CIA and not the NSA or anybody like that. It would be the, those capitalist motherfuckers. So I am just so on board with the whole premise of this and I had an absolute blast watching it. I agree with everything you just said, Helen. Uh, we weren't interrupted in any way whatsoever, so I haven't already forgotten it. Uh, ben? Yes, I'm more on the Helen end of things. I had a lot of fun with this. I think, well, to rephrase that, I enjoyed this a lot. I think I agree with James in that it could have had more fun as a film with this premise. It takes it in a this sort of quite... Um, it takes the concept in quite a serious direction, which is fair because there is, there's a real interesting idea to these people who have been alive for hundreds of thousands of years and are sort of can't die and maybe wish they could die, but actually confronted if they could die, they probably wouldn't like that. Sound like <laughs> um, podcasters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One day we will be released from this podcasting uh, business. <laughs> but I really appreciated Charlize Theron and Kiki Lane together, mm. all of their scenes, whether they were fighting each other or talking mm. about things, all of those scenes are really great. And I think there mm. are so many of these pretty middling action thrillers that either have a bit of a nasty edge to it or a bit of a misogynistic edge to it and the fact that this is a perfectly enjoyable pretty middle tier action thriller that has some really amazing female action heroes that has some like sneaks in some queer storylines in a really interesting way that plays with who these characters are i think with Charlize theron's character um even though they don't spell loads of it out i love that you can just see in the way that she approaches action situations just how badass she is that she has lived for six thousand years so she is going to be as insanely efficient sort of doing stealth moves sneaking up on people she's so slick and precise in her movements and i love how it came across that way her her years and years of experience and um how good she is at what she does um so yeah i had fun with it it's just that it's trapped in this plot that is the most basic they're going up against a very gray shadowy organization and the evil guy is like a sort of evil guy dude yeah. in his 20s who's kind of physically not that intimidating but he wants to solve dementia and it's like i've seen that story so 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 sea, many times yeah. um so I think I would like to see more of this, especially if they can find a more interesting thing to do with these characters. Mm. And there was something at the end that I probably should have seen coming, but when it happened, I was like, ooh, okay, I would see where this goes next. That's the film I want to watch. So there's yeah. a part of me that's just like, I will sit through this 
And I, I genuinely, genuinely, despite having given this negative review, I hope they do do another one because I think the second one of this could be a really good film that I would like to see. Uh, but I will yeah. live on this podcast right now revise my star rating up one star from oh, two to three. Oh, you coward. You <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm going to... No, no. I, I, I think I was perhaps a little harsh on this. I don't think this is great. I do think it's a little bit meh, but I think it's probably closer to a three-star meh than you, a two-star meh. You disgust meh. me. So, You're the real Dudley yeah. Dursley here. to the cupboard under the stairs with you had four privet drive how dare you sir how bloody dare you imagine if at netflix they're discussing whether to make the sequel to this and and the one thing that stops them is that empire gave it two stars (laughs) we've fed everything into the algorithm sir and people seem to be liking it but the reviews it's on 74% Rotten Tomatoes. If it had got to 75, then we could have greenlit this and, and, and given people jobs and security and fed them. But um, according to a James Dyer of Empire, it's a bit rubs. So, <laughs> soz. I am once again the worst. I mean, I've been saying it for a while now. Yeah, but. You were the reincarnation of Margaret Thatcher and I claim my five pounds. Uh, two stars then for the old guard. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we have Tom Hanks. He's back in World War II. And this time, he's on a boat. It's Greyhound. Yes, it's another Tom Hanks on a boat movie. And it's another good Tom Hanks on a boat movie. Not as good as the last Tom Hanks on a boat movie, which was Captain Phillips. But um, this is a film that Hanks has written himself. He's a, a screenwriter on this as well as its lead star. On a uh, typewriter, hopefully. I, yeah. I just have images of him just writing this script really, really slowly on a typewriter. <laughs> well, For sure. There are moments in the film where um, you get little captions on the screen of which ships are which, and those come up in typewriter fonts. And I like to think <laughs> that that was part of Tom Hanks's uh, contract for this. Um, so he is adapting uh, C.S. Forrester's novel, The Good Shepherd, uh, and he plays the lead role here of uh, Captain Ernest Krause, who is, um, look, I don't massively understand the ins and outs of World War II or or, or naval combat in general. Um, <laughs> so he is basically the leader of, uh, the captain of the ship that is leading a group of other ships, and he has to lead them through this really treacherous stretch of land where they get no Water. air Water. support. <laughs> did I say land? You did, what yes. the fuck? <laughs> you fundamentally misunderstood what a boat does. <laughs> Literally the opposite. The opposite of what I said. <laughs> He's trying to get them across this really treacherous stretch of sea where they have no support from the air, from the planes flying overhead. So he Web is land. in charge of keeping all of these other boats safe. Uh, and meanwhile, there are German U-boats, submarines that are kind of bobbing up out of the water and going back down under the water, shooting torpedoes <laughs> at them. And he has to not only protect his ship, but also all of the other ships with all the other men who will die if they get blown up by torpedoes. So as somebody who doesn't really instinctively know how any of these things work, I think one thing that was really great about Greyhound as a film is that it gets that central concept across really well. And it was a, I went into this expecting it to be a slightly trudgy, dirgy, sad Tom Hanks on a boat movie. And actually, it was an 82-minute, like, really taut, quite tense, action-packed Tom Hanks on a boat movie um, in a way that was, yeah, surprising and, and really enjoyable. It's, it's so stripped down. Without credits, it is 82 minutes long and it's they're trying to get across the stretch of sea and the ins and outs of how they do that and the sort of minute details of how this ship runs, the responsibilities that he takes on as captain 
that's kind of what makes up the meat of the film. And I think when we did our Heroes podcast recently, uh, Amon talked a lot about just the joy of seeing good leadership on screen. And that is what you get from this film. You get Tom Hanks looking worried and being put in these really treacherous sort of positions where he has to make quick decisions that are going to affect hundreds and thousands of lives. But you trust that he knows what he's doing and you see him kind of outfox the enemy at, at kind of all different turns and if you want to see tom hanks doing a good job of things while hope being everybody's screen dad that is what <laughs> greyhound is he wears yeah. slippers at some point that's how daddy he is in this <laughs> i'd say more dad than daddy just yeah, to be clear <laughs> daddy is a very different film does daddy have sexual connotations mm. yeah there's dad and then there's daddy and then there's zaddy and he's definitely on dad rather <laughs> than daddy zaddy. or zaddy <laughs> Zaddy is like a step up where it goes beyond daddy to be like, ooh, Zaddy. You know? Is that to be confused with Savvy, like which deliver you DVDs? <laughs> it's nothing to do with Zavi. And what what do you say, Helen? Dilf? Is it like a Dilf? I think Dilf would be more like daddy. Yeah. I don't know. So where does Zaddy come in? I'm just really Zaddy confused. Zaddy is just like next level, like you just it's like an instinctive response that you see and you go, ooh, Zaddy. Huh. I don't feel enlightened, I'll be honest, but I'll trust you. I trust you. All right. So Tom Hanks in a boat. Did you like Helen? Did you like? I like this as well. Yeah. I I was also kind of expecting something a bit woollier, not literally, but just in terms of story. And and, um, and it is actually very tense. It's very uh, nonstop. There's a lot of naval jargon. So, you know, just like you've got to kind of go with that basically throughout. But um, but I enjoyed that. And I, I like that it sort of portrayed the chaos of war, I think, quite well. And it portrayed how many people are involved. It's not, you know, he's the leader and I agree. I think he portrays that really, really well. But I think what was interesting is there's all of these terrified looking, teenage looking young sailors around him um, who all have their different functions and are all looking to him, like basically all the time for kind of support and guidance. And it must be just crushing and it must be terrifying. And you get a, a sense of that, I think, in a way that, you know, the World War II movies of the 1940s and 50s like just didn't really portray. So it feels kind of modern in that sense. You do get his anxiety and his, uh, his the pressure that he's under. And the fact that this is his first crossing. And for many of them, you know, it might be their seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, whatever. Um, so he's... Uh, somewhat out of his depth, much like the convoy itself. If if they get hit, they're um, they're they're goners. Um, I just yeah, I was I was gripped. I I, th- I thought it was a. I think director Aaron Schneider does a really good job of like get in, hit people hard, get out. Doesn't waste much time, but gives us just enough character beats to kind of keep us interested through the running time. You you were talking about the jargon there as well. I think they do a really good job of visually signalling what all of this jargon is that. Verbally, you don't know what the hell it means, but it does a really good job of showing you what it means by following the actions of the people. He says, go off and do this, and this person's got this role on the ship. I also like the way that it frames the the, the U-boats. So they, they're almost like crocodiles, the way they sort of like bob up out of the water, and you see them on surface level, and then they sort of sink underneath. And that they do a really good job of building the tension there of they don't know and you don't know exactly where this thing is and where it's going to strike. Yeah. I mean, it was terrifying at the time. It was, they were such an, an, a powerful force. Um, the U-boat sort of armada in the Atlantic, like it was, 
it must have been absolutely terrifying. I've talked to veterans who who lived through the, the Battle of the Atlantic. And aside from the conditions, which you also see in this film being horrific and just horrific weather, horrific cold, wind, rain, you name it, you also had that just ever-present fear of one of these just blowing you away before you even knew they were there. Absolutely terrifying. I think um, on the sort of slightly downside, I wouldn't say there's bad CGI here, but there are maybe bits where the the difference between the internal reality of the boat and the external reality, there's a yeah. bit of a a disconnect there sometimes. Yes, yeah. it feels very it feels very artificial. I would say, but uh, but I enjoyed this more than I thought I was going to because, uh, quite frankly, I thought the trailer was terrible um, and did not was not promising at all. Uh, but this is this is good, and once you lock into what the film is rather than maybe what you expected it to be, which is a very, I expected it to be a kind of Spielberg at sea kind of thing where we get to know the men. Um, it's not that at all. You barely get to know anyone. Stephen Graham's probably the most prominent cast member after Tom Hanks, but we don't get to know these characters in their lives. I'm not sure we even get to know their names uh, from time to time. The whole point is that in, in the green ga- in the green Grassian style, you're plunged into this world and you have to get up to speed pretty damn quick, uh, lest it's a torpedo detonate. sink or swim, if you will. It is. Sink or swim, Helen. That's what they do on the wetland. <laughs> they, really, they really do. Um yeah, I, I thought this was I thought this was solid stuff and um, and so short, mercifully short. Oh, please, yes, eighty two minutes long. Thank you, thank you, Jesus. Uh, three stars in uh, to Tom Hanks. Actually, you know what? Fuck it. Five stars to Tom Hanks for everything <laughs> he does, but three stars for his film Greyhound. And last but not least, this week we have Finding the Way Back, uh, which is the reunion of Ben Affleck with his the accountant director. Uh, Gavin O'Connor. That can get very confusing that sentence very, very quickly. But he's a director of The Accountant. He's not an accountant who's also a director. He directed The Accountant, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, but he also directed The Wonderful Warrior, which is a film I return to an awful lot. And this is a story of Ben Affleck battling booze. Helen. Yeah, so you have to assume it was uh, somewhat of a, a personal project for for Ben Affleck, as well as obviously having worked with with O'Connor before. Mm. Uh, but he plays Jack, who is a guy who was a massive star in his high school basketball team, and his entire life seems to have gone downhill from there. Because when we meet him, he's he's working, he has a job, he's working in construction, but he's separated from his wife, who's played by Janine Gavankar. Um, he is struggling with his wider family. You know, you can see kind of resentment and arguments every time he goes to visit his his sisters and so on. Um, and and he's spending pretty much all his free time at the local pub, like all his free time. He is absolutely clearly an alcoholic um so that's where he is when we meet him then he gets the offer of uh he's asked to take up um his the coaching of his former school's basketball team um father edward who's the the new head of the school um john elward basically calls him in and and kind of makes him this offer and he spends the entire evening recording phone messages turning the job (laughs) down and getting steadily more drunk as he does so and at some point he must just decide to take it and um turns up the next day and you you think you know where the film is going you think this is going to be the inspirational basketball movie where he turns the losing team around and makes them into winners. And to some extent, that's what you get. Um, But to a larger extent, it absolutely isn't because he hasn't dealt with any of his issues. He's still drinking heavily. He's drinking in his office. He's drinking on the way to games. He's drinking around the students when he shouldn't be drinking anywhere near them. Um, And he 
clearly hasn't dealt with whatever it is that's kind of haunting him. Um, so I think that all is pretty good. I think the the bit of the film that lost me is that they decided to give him a sympathetic reason, essentially, for his alcoholism and for his for his personal problems. And I understand why they did it. I understand why the temptation is there. I understand why it adds drama to the story. I just felt like it actually takes away from the reality that you thought you were watching. And I th I thought it took away from the universality maybe of it um, a little bit. So I, I don't mean to say that it's not something that couldn't happen. It's not like aliens came down and made him an alcoholic. It is a, an all too real tragedy that befalls people, but it just feels like it's taking the easy way out to give this character such a kind of cast iron, sympathetic, audience winning reason for everything he does, when maybe it would be more a better film and a more complicated and a more complex film if he was just an alcoholic because some people struggle with alcoholism. And I feel like that would have been, I don't know, I think that would have been more powerful for me. But really good performances. Um, and I think uh, O'Connor gets this a really consistent tone where even when things are going well, you realise that there's something underneath, you realise that there's something discordant. And you understand that, you know, something's still kind of looming for this guy. So I think it, it, it strikes a really fine balance that way. I, I just find that one aspect of the script um, by Brad Inglesby just a little cliched. So I quite liked the aspect that we're neither of us going to spoil. Uh, I quite liked that reason. I thought it added a dimension to the character. There was a real sort of sense of tragedy to it that I felt reverberated throughout that performance. I get what you're saying, that perhaps it would have been more interesting to look at, you know, alcoholism for alcoholism's sake, rather than looking for underlying real world sort of causes for it. But I, I really liked that. That that gave me an extra access point to that character. And I think I liked this film more than I thought I would. Like, I'm, I, I must say, I'm not really into sports. But I quite I find the phenomenon, especially in America, of the sort of like hagiography around high school sports fascinating. Like it's a whole other world. Uh, and he is, of course, no coach Eric Taylor. But uh, <laughs> I um, can, can we just say sorry, Coach Taylor, Daddy? Oh, he's <laughs> not a daddy. daddy, but Daddy. No, he's totally a Daddy. Yeah. Who? who but, what? What's happening? Who's Coach Taylor? He, he has For children. Friday Night Lights. Fine. Friday Night Lights, Chris. Oh, right. Okay. Sorry. TV yeah. show flavor. Yeah. But, which you can hear about on the Pilot TV oh, podcast. Oh, Jesus right? Christ. Um, but yeah, so he's no Coach Taylor. But what I liked about this is that this was, it was a kind of a, a it was a sad sack performance from Ben Affleck, but it was quite an understated mm. role. And I think he really inhabits it. And obviously there are reasons for that. He brings a lot of himself and his own experience to this role. It felt like a very personal film, very personal performance from Affleck. And I think he plays it beautifully. There's a real sort of weight on his shoulders all the way through. There's a real sort of aura of sort of tragedy about how he's enslaved to this, this addiction that he has. Has. Now, I think he sells it completely. Uh, obviously, drawing on a lot of his, his real life experience will, will help with that. But yeah, I enjoy this. Like, it's not it's not fabulous. It doesn't move mountains. It doesn't do anything hugely shocking or exciting. But I think I like that it does slightly subvert the you know underdog sports yeah. movie tropes slightly, and it goes maybe somewhere you wouldn't necessarily expect. And I very much appreciated that too. So uh, yeah, no, mm -hmm. I, uh, I I did like this. 
Yeah, I, I, I thought it was terrific, but uh, I'm a sucker for shit like this. <laughs> Sports movie and a redemption movie? What? Oh, my God. From yeah. the director of Warrior that feels a little bit like Warrior? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought it was really, really good. Um, and I like that it doesn't you know, always go where you expect it to go. And mm-hmm. Affleck is, is very, very good in the role indeed. Yeah, he is um, terrific. We gave this one three stars. I think we're all... I'm a little bit higher than that in the three, but, uh, but hey... Your mileage may vary. Three stars then for Finding the Way Back, which is known as The Way Back in the States. And that's available this week. I haven't mentioned where you can see any of these movies this week. So this is available on premium PVOD is what they're calling it. Premium video on demand. So you can rent Finding the Way Back from pretty much anywhere. Apple, Amazon, Sky, you, you know, Microsoft, any of these places where you, you, you can find films. Greyhound is exclusively on Apple TV+. And The Old Guard, as is so often the case these days, is available exclusively on the Flix du Net. So check those out if indeed that tickles your fancy. Uh, but that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by someone who's not confirmed yet, but I'm hoping that it'll happen. But until then, until the auspicious occasion, until we meet again, it is goodbye from Ben Travis. Wilson! (laughs) (laughs) Wilson says nothing. It is goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. You say toodaloo. Mm -hmm. But that sounded just there now like toodaloo. Which are I mean, you, also, are you disclosing your plans really in your next destination? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> toodaloo, everybody! There is work like to be done. To the lunch, actually, at any, any moment. To the lunch. To the lunch. Uh, and it's goodbye from James Dyer. There can be only one. Can I, my little, that's, see, that's me doing a Frenchman doing a Scotsman trained by an Egyptian speaking with a Scottish accent. Was it though? <laughs> there could be only one. An Egyptian Spaniard speaking with a Scottish That's accent, it. I should say. Greetings, Highlander. Uh, <laughs> that, that famous Egyptian <laughs> accent. <laughs> and it is goodbye for me. I am off to the loo and then to the lunch and then finally <laughs> to record an episode of the ranking about Ennio Morricone. Helen has just sent me her top 10. Can't wait to crack into that. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Bye bye.